The Braille Monitor, Volume 66, Number 11, December 2023. Gary Wonder, Editor. Distributed by email, in ink print, in Braille, and on USB flash drive by the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono, President. Telephone, 410-659-9314. Email address, nfb at nfb.org. Website address, http colon slash slash www.nfb.org. nfbnet.org, http colon slash slash www.nfbnet.org. NFB Newsline Information, 866-504-7300. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash National Federation of the Blind. Follow us on Twitter at nfb underscore voice. Watch and share our videos, youtube.com slash nationsblind. Letters to the President, address changes, subscription requests, and orders for NFB literature should be sent to the National Office. Articles for the Monitor and letters to the Editor may also be sent to the National Office or may be emailed to gwunder, g-w-u-n-d-e-r, at nfb.org. Monitor subscriptions cost the Federation about $40 per year. Members are invited and non-members are requested to cover the subscription cost. Donations should be made payable to National Federation of the Blind and sent to National Federation of the Blind, 200 East Well Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230-4998. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. The National Federation of the Blind is not an organization speaking for the blind. It is the blind speaking for ourselves. ISSN 0006-8829 Copyright 2023 by the National Federation of the Blind Each issue is recorded on a thumb drive, also called a memory stick or USB flash drive. You can read this audio edition using a computer or a National Library Service digital player. The NLS machine has two slots, the familiar book cartridge slot just above the retractable carrying handle and a second slot located on the right side near the headphone jack. This smaller slot is used to play thumb drives. Remove the protective rubber pad covering this slot and insert the thumb drive. It will insert only in one position. If you encounter resistance, flip the drive over and try again. Note, if the cartridge slot is not empty when you insert the thumb drive, the digital player will ignore the thumb drive. Once the thumb drive is inserted, the player buttons will function as usual for reading digital materials. If you remove the thumb drive to use the player for cartridges, when you insert it again, reading should resume at the point you stopped. You can transfer the recording of each issue from the thumb drive to your computer or preserve it on the thumb drive. However, because thumb drives can be used hundreds of times, we would appreciate their return in order to stretch our funding. Please use the return envelope enclosed with the drive when you return the device. Volume 66, Number 11, December 2023, Contents Illustration Carla Gilbride confirmed to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Convention Bullets in 2024 Convention Location Update and Planning by Mark Riccobono. Innovation Rocks, Positive Progress Centered on the Blind, 
an address delivered by Mark A. Riccobono, President. Securing Equal Protection Under the Law, The Essential Role of the Organized Blind Movement by Eve Hill. The 2024 Blind Educator of the Year Award by Robin House. Shattering Injustice and Raising Expectations, Dedication to Equality by a Blind Attorney by Carla Gilbride. Social Security Disability Insurance and Supplemental Security Income Updates for 2024 by Jesse Shirek. From California to Illinois, Powered by Braille by Rachel Held. O'Rourke Completes Six-Week Fundraising Bike Ride for Blind by Emily Benjamin. Pit Stop Party at Kirkwood Library. NHL Referee Dan O'Rourke Bikes Route 66 for Braille Literacy Fundraising by Julie Brown Patton. The 2024 Dr. Jacob Balotin Awards by Everett Bacon. It Matters What We Do, Not Who We Are by Jarrett J. Vermey. Announcing the NFB 2024 Scholarship Program by Kate Mendez. My Experiences as a Deafblind Participant in our 2023 National Convention by Maurice Mines. We Have Work to Do Reflections on Changing the Blind Employment Paradigm by Mary Fernandez. Braille Books and Contest Cash by Sandy Halverson. The 2024 Distinguished Educator of Blind Students Award by Carla McQuillan. Veteran finishes the half marathon at the Cleveland Marathon while serving as an inspiration for blind athletes by Irie Harris, Cleveland.com. Eleven Seasonal Acts of Kindness by Lashana Fant. Monitor Miniatures. Carla Gilbride confirmed to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. A photo appears on the page. The caption, Charlotte Burroughs, chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, administers Carla's oath of office. Carla's hand rests on a braille copy of the Constitution her mother, Janet Gilbride, is holding. Carla Gilbride exemplifies the best of the American ideal of progress. She has crafted her own tough, smart, and effective brand of fighting injustice without forgetting both that she has inherited benefits won by those who came before her and that there are those in our society who still do not enjoy those benefits. As impressive as her presence is in the courtroom, it is surpassed by her humanity, her deep commitment to the fact that each victory is merely another milestone on the journey to equality, not a place to settle. While we recognize her unique characteristics as being an asset to her legal work, we also must recognize that they put additional obstacles in her way because of the persistent misconceptions that exist deep in our society. What is impressive is not that she overcomes those misconceptions, but that she shatters them with the power of her hard work and the strength of her convictions. She could have used her talents for any number of life pursuits. Fortunately, she has chosen to open doors of equal opportunity in society. Our nation is stronger because of her willingness to serve. On a personal note, as a blind person and as a father of two blind girls, I am grateful for the example of excellence that Carla Gilbride sets for all Americans seeking the ideal of progress and a more perfect union. Convention Bulletin 2024 A photo appears on the page, the caption, Rosen Center Hotel at Night. As difficult as it may be to believe that 2023 has slipped by us in the blink of an eye, we can be assured that a shiny new 2024 will follow on its heels. As we flip the calendar to January, it will again be time to plan for the National Federation of the Blind's National Convention. We were last at the beautiful Rosen Center in Orlando at 9840 International Drive in 2015 for our 75th anniversary convention. 
The outstanding Rosen staff will be rolling out the red carpet to welcome us back this July 3 through 8. Book your hotel. Our 2024 convention room rate for singles and doubles is $129. For triples and quads, the rate is $139. Occupancy taxes and surcharges are an additional 13.5%. There is no charge for children under 18 as long as no extra bed is requested. Please note that the hotel is a no-smoking facility. For 2024 convention room reservations, you should call the hotel at 800-204-7234 after January 1. Ask for the NFB convention block. At the time you make a reservation, a $146 deposit is required for each room reserved. If you use a credit card, the deposit will be charged against your card immediately, just as would be the case with a $146 check. If a reservation is canceled before Saturday, June 1, 2024, half of the deposit will be returned. Otherwise, refunds will not be made. Guest room amenities include a wall-mounted 50-inch HDTV with a multi-outlet connectivity bar beneath to keep your devices charged and ready for the complimentary in-room Wi-Fi. Each room also offers an in-room safe, coffee maker, mini-fridge, and hairdryer. Guests can enjoy a swimming pool, fitness center, and on-site spa. Those of you who have attended past conventions at the Rosen Center may remember Café Gauguin Buffet and the award-winning Everglades Restaurant. In addition to these favorites, we will have an array of dining options from sushi and tapas to Caribbean-Cuban poolside dining to a 24-hour deli. Convention Schedule The 2024 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind will be a truly exciting and memorable event with an unparalleled program and rededication to the goals and work of our movement. A wide range of seminars for parents of blind children, technology enthusiasts, job seekers, and other groups will kick the week off on Wednesday, July 3. Convention registration and registration packet pickup will also open on Wednesday. Breakout sessions continue on Thursday, July 4, along with committee meetings. Friday, July 5, will kick off with the annual meeting, open to all, of the Board of Directors of the National Federation of the Blind. National Division meetings will follow the board meeting that afternoon and evening. General convention sessions will begin on Saturday, July 6, and continue through the afternoon of Monday, July 8. Convention ends on a high note with the banquet Monday evening, so be sure to pack your fancy clothes. The fall of the gavel at the close of banquet will signal convention's adjournment. Make plans now to be a part of it. To assure yourself a room in the headquarters hotel at convention rates, you should make reservations early. The hotel will be ready to take your call beginning January 1. Request for door prizes. Remember that as usual, we need door prizes from state affiliates, local chapters, and individuals. Prizes should be small in size, but large in value. Cash, of course, is always appropriate and welcome. As a general rule, we ask that prizes of all kinds have a value of at least $25 and not include alcohol. Drawings will occur steadily throughout the convention sessions, and you can anticipate a grand prize of truly impressive proportions to be drawn at the banquet. If you have a prize that must be shipped in advance of the convention, please email Affiliate President Paul Martinez at president at nfbflorida.org to make arrangements. Countdown to Orlando. The best collection of exhibits featuring new technology, meetings of our special interest groups, committees, and divisions, the most stimulating and provocative program items of any meeting of the blind in the world, the chance to renew friendships in our Federation family, and the unparalleled opportunity to be where the real action is and where decisions are being made.
All of these mean you will not want to miss being a part of the 2024 National Convention. We can't wait to be with you in Orlando in July. Convention Location Update and Planning by Mark Riccobono A photo appears on the page. The caption, Mark Riccobono, holds his NFB member coin. The 2024 National Convention of the National Federation of the Blind is scheduled for July 3 through July 8, 2024 at the Rosen Center in Orlando, Florida. This letter is an important update to our members and supporters about our deliberations and plans for our upcoming convention. This letter is also an invitation for you to continue to share your feedback, ideas, and resources as we prepare for 2024 and beyond. In order to secure the best possible convention conditions for our members, we must sign our convention contracts many years in advance. After signing our contract for 2024, the enactment of new laws in the state of Florida resulted in serious concerns within our community. As with everything we do, we rely on our members and our supporters to help steer us through unexpected circumstances that are out of our control. Our Board of Directors released an initial statement regarding the location of the 2024 National Convention. Link available at nfb.org slash monitor links. And since that time, our leaders have been listening to our members and considering additional actions. This letter is intended to brief you on the factors which impact our decision for 2024, the critical factors that go into selecting a national convention location, and the additional measures we are securing for NFB 24. Our decision to go to Florida. As America's transformative membership and advocacy organization of blind people, our only purpose in visiting Florida is to further the work of our organization through our annual convention, which is our supreme governing authority. Our work is centered on defending the rights of blind people to live the lives they want. As our code of conduct affirms, the National Federation of the Blind does not tolerate discrimination on the basis of race, creed, color, religion, gender identity and expression, sexual orientation, national origin, citizenship, marital status, age, genetic information, disability, political affiliation, or any other characteristic or intersectionality of characteristics. As shared at the September presidential release to our members, the National Federation of the Blind Board of Directors discussed in depth the concerns from some members about Florida and reviewed recent travel advisories. The board specifically noted that the travel advisories from other civil rights organizations do not call for boycotts of or travel bans to the state of Florida. The goal of the advisories was to ensure everyone had complete information about the state policies so individuals could make decisions for themselves. We also considered the impact on our attendees and specifically on our members in Florida, who have to live with these policies every day as blind people. Publicly stated position of support from Rosen leadership and staff on these issues, their commitment to our attendees, and their track record of hosting us in the past. Effective showing up and demonstrating the power of diversity and unity within our movement and the positive influence of bringing the diversity of the Federation community to Florida. Financial implications of breaking our 2024 contract. At the time our board first evaluated these circumstances, it would have cost the Federation upwards of three-quarters of a million dollars, and today the cancellation cost would be upwards of $1.1 million. Challenges of securing alternative arrangements on very short notice, limiting our options. Options to make as many members of the Federation as possible feel safe, supported, and welcome at our 2024 convention and how we could rally Federation members more broadly to help in that effort. While we made the decision to go to Florida in 2024, 
We have also committed to actions to make the upcoming convention a meaningful demonstration of the power and diversity of our community. Furthermore, we remain fully committed to the future by digging deeper with the following priority from our current strategic plan. Evaluate and enhance the national convention and other events to ensure that they are inclusive and welcoming and continue to add value to our community. Selecting convention locations. There are many factors considered when identifying, evaluating, and ultimately selecting a future convention location. These issues can be complicated when factors out of our control change after we sign a contract. Critical factors for convention location selection are adequate space and layout, affordability of hotel, travel, and dining options for the broad spectrum of our members, accessibility of hotel spaces and services, geographic rotation. As we evaluate potential convention destinations against our selection criteria, we will closely consider all factors that affect the members of our community and our organization. We believe we have a strong track record of balancing all of the factors and putting on a quality, safe, and empowering convention for all attendees. However, we welcome partners that may be able to further improve the unique experience that is a Federation convention in the future. Doing more in 2024. We have several months before we meet in Orlando for the largest gathering of blind people in the world, and we are working diligently to remain vigilant, innovative, and inclusive in our convention planning as we anticipate bringing thousands of people together. Our aim is to roll out specifics with the launch of our convention registration expected to open on March 1, 2024. Here is our current action plan. Prioritizing communications with members and supporters on the updates regarding the safety measures for NFB24, including continuing to invite feedback and partnerships. Creating an opt-in safety support network for concerned NFB24 attendees traveling to Florida. This plan will include support to and from the airport, training for volunteers, and other processes that are currently in development. Establishing a legal support network led by our National Association of Blind Lawyers to assist NFB24 attendees who may experience discrimination due to their coming to Florida. Partnering with relevant civil rights organizations, we are currently in conversation with a few other organizations to determine a scope of needs and resources. Connecting with local law enforcement, the City of Orlando and the Orlando Police Department are committed to the safety of all lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, LGBTQ, residents, and visitors. Read about their Orlando Safe Place work at nfb.org monitor links. We will ensure these officials are aware of our convention and the concerns in our community. Promoting an opportunity for NFB24 attendees to drive other positive change in Florida through a Federation-sponsored social offset campaign. Link available at nfb.org monitor links. Educating all NFB24 registered attendees about these concerns and the resources available so that all attendees can serve as part of our support team on the ground in Florida. Enhancing our National Convention virtual experience to support our members and friends who cannot be in Florida for any reason. The National Federation of the Blind deeply appreciates all the members and supporters who are committed to helping the organized blind movement work through these difficult issues as we continue to build a 21st century movement that represents all blind people and does the best to make sure that we set an example for the rest of society about how people should be included. We hope that you will be a part of our 2024 National Convention, and we invite your feedback, ideas, and resources in making this our most dynamic convention ever.
Thank you for all you do to center blind people and amplify our voice in society. Innovation Rocks, positive progress centered on the blind, quote, we will rock you, end quote. An address delivered by Mark A. Riccobono, President, presented to the American Printing House for the Blind, 155th Annual Meeting, Louisville, Kentucky, October 5, 2023. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Ann Lancaster introduces Mark Riccobono. Photo 2, the caption, Mark Riccobono speaking to the American Printing House for the Blind Annual Meeting. From the editor, President Riccobono was introduced by Ann Lancaster, the Vice President-slash-Chief Officer, Innovation and Strategy at the American Printing House for the Blind. The change in attitude that can come through real relationships is no better exemplified than by her remarks. I hope readers enjoy both and feel as though we were a part of the audience. Our keynote speaker today needs no introduction, but somehow I've been tasked with the challenge and also the honor of doing such an introduction. But I'm going to be absolutely honest and transparent here, which I've learned is a trait President Riccobono appreciates. Before I ever even met Mark, I was terrified of him. <laughs> I had heard the stories, I'm sure you've heard them too, how dangerous it was to make him angry, and just about anything could make him angry, apparently, and how awful the revenge would be. Hellfire and brimstone stuff. There seemed to be a trepidation throughout the field to even associate with NFB, and as a newcomer to this work at that time, trying to figure out all the politics, I felt like it was a good idea just to keep my distance. But as I watched his work at NFB conventions and listened to his speeches and learned more about him and this huge organization representing the voices of blind people, I became intrigued and curious. I found that often his ideals were in opposition to the current thinking in the field, but there were good reasons for that. I saw heart, passion, and dedication to breaking the barriers that stand in the way of blind people living the lives they want. After coming to APH, I supported Dr. Metter's desire to strengthen the relationship between APH and NFB, a relationship that had admittedly become distant and fragmented. President Riccobono welcomed this opportunity for renewed partnership with a willingness to let bygones be bygones. This led to a number of collaborations around the Connect Center, Code Jumper, Mantis, Chameleon, Lego Braille Bricks, and more. And of course, there is our partnership with Monarch and the EBRF, which has been absolutely essential to ensuring that the needs and voices of blind people are at the forefront of development. Working closely with Mark and seeing him in action has taught me a lot personally about leadership and partnership. And as for those rumors, well, don't believe everything you hear, although I think Mark kind of enjoys that reputation, <laughs> at least a little bit. He eats, breathes, and sleeps the mission of his organization, and he is unapologetic for that. And when he does get terrifying, and he has with me more than once, I've learned it's for good reason. Mark will tell it to you like it is. And as a sighted person, inflicted with sighted biases, who is working in this field, I absolutely need his blunt candor to keep me focused on this one unequivocal, unmovable truth. Absolutely nothing, nothing about them 
without them at any level. The influence of our partnership with NFB has led to many positive changes at APH. We are listening better. We are including more. And granted, we have a long way to go. And we should and we will do better. But we can trust that if we begin to lose our way, our friends at NFB will check us and patiently work with us to get us back on the straight and narrow. And that's what good friends do. So today we are honored and privileged and not terrified at all to welcome President Mark Riccobono of the National Federation of the Blind as our annual meeting keynote speaker. <laughs> NFB elected Mark to serve as its president in July of 2014. He has been re-elected by the membership every two years since that time. He has a long list of achievements and experiences that led him to this role and that define his current presidency. But more than once on his resume, I am truly grateful for his character, his commitment, and his honesty. Please join me in giving another warm welcome to our partner and friend, Mark Riccobono. Okay, that's a good start, but we gotta do better than that. We gotta do better than that. First of all, let me say what a wonderful introduction, Anne. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I wasn't sure where she was going with that at first. Uh, and uh, to Dr. Metter, what a great opening yesterday, and what a, what a tremendous way to open this talk about innovation with those awards. I mean, truly, uh, truly folks that deserve recognition. So congratulations to APH on uh, starting off with innovation. So innovation, while it makes a great theme for this annual meeting, uh, we have to admit that it is an overused and uh, highly misunderstood buzzword, no pun intended to the APH hive. <laughs> this morning my goal is not to wow you with innovation, or to tell you that we've been getting it all wrong. Today, I want to riff on the idea of bringing together a community of dedicated individuals who are prepared to rock the field of blindness. Each of you has the choice of being in that community and contributing to the music. And as you contemplate that choice this morning, I noticed some of you were a little reluctant to play along here at the beginning. Keep in mind that innovation rocks, and together we will rock you. The great philosopher, John Lennon, <laughs> said that there's nothing you can know that isn't known. This is the first really simple opening power chord to rocking in the blindness field. What can be known about blindness can be found 
within blind people themselves. It's not found in the research journals, in the university classrooms, or even in the concurrent sessions here at the APH conference, not even in the Monarch session coming up next, which I do encourage you to attend. <laughs> it's found in the lived experience of blind people, not just one, two, or even 10 blind people, but hundreds of us. We cannot talk about innovation without recognizing that it begins with blind people. It has to be centered on blind people. We have to take our lead from what blind people know. To innovate, however, we need more than an opening cord. American innovator Henry Ford said, I am looking for a lot of people who have an infinite capacity to not know what can't be done. For our purposes, I would add, by blind people. We need a lot of people with an infinite capacity to not know what cannot be done by blind people. If that is you, you can be part of the innovation community here today. Does your internal rhythm begin with a core belief in the capacity of blind people? That rhythm is essential to innovating in ways that cultivate that capacity. It's not enough to center our work on blind people. We truly have to believe in blind people to the point where we do not know where the limits are for blind people. And when we do that, innovation can happen. And innovation rocks. Now this was something that even I, as a blind person, had to learn over time. You can join me in that rhythm. You have to be daring enough to be led by blind people and humble enough to innovate in your own life. And you too can get to the place where you can rock a confidence in blind people. To say that someone rocks means they do their work with enthusiasm, skill, and confidence. This is a level of professional growth we should all be pursuing. In order to do that, we need a community of support around us, a community that challenges us to be better and to support our growth. So when I say we will rock you, 
It is my way of expressing that our collective confidence in blind people, our shared focus on the wisdom in the lived experience of blind people, that we make a difference when we share that understanding. It is also to say that when you have the backs of blind people because you believe in us, we will have your back too. We will rock you. What about innovation? What does that really mean? At its basic level, innovation is thought to be about the creation of a new idea, method, or device. Sometimes innovation means to improve or replace something. And uh, with all respect to Dr. Metter's uh, definition of innovation last evening, uh, I believe these definitions are far too limiting for this audience. True innovation is more than the outcome. It's the process. It's the pattern of thought. It's the journey. I prefer this definition. Innovation is the process of creating value by applying fresh solutions to meaningful problems. I'll give that to you again. Innovation is the process of creating value by applying fresh solutions to meaningful problems. Let me break that down for you and uh, let me use the monarch as our example. This is where Anne's going to get nervous. <laughs> Do we have a meaningful problem? And by the way, let me pause here to say that there is a graveyard of hundreds of attempted innovations for the blind uh, that were chasing solutions to false problems. Examples include everything from yoga mats, toothbrushes, and even a toilet designed with the blind in mind. It is not enough, it is not enough that something is new just because no one invented a toilet for the blind before does not make it innovative. <laughs> huh. It has to solve a real, not a perceived, meaningful problem. In order to know meaningful problems, you have to be centered on the experience and wisdom of blind people themselves. We know that a significant problem, despite the many great uh, strides we have made, is having access to text and graphical information in real time 
in integrated classrooms and in ways that can be easily manipulated and edited. We know that Braille, a foundational innovation that solved a very real problem, could be even better if it was presented in more lines and with more capabilities. So we have a meaningful problem. Do we have a fresh solution? With the monarch, I say yes. There are many aspects uh, that allow the monarch to meet this specific criteria. One of these is the combination of partners working on the project itself. The fresh approach of combining the unique skills and talents at the American Printing House for the Blind and Humanware and the members of the National Federation of the Blind. This also brings in our power cord of being centered on the real experience of blind people, the known wisdom of blind people. When the technical team working on the Monarch took on a new approach, they tested it against the real experience of blind people. The innovative approaches are the ones that made it through the testing because they achieved the final element of innovation. The process of creating value. If the new ideas built into the monarch are truly innovative, they have to demonstrate value to the end users, to blind people. And more importantly, true innovation occurs alongside a collaborative process and a determination of real value. As blind users test concepts, they articulate things they would like the, tech, uh, the technology to do. If the Monarch team believes in blind people, and I can say from my personal experience, they absolutely do, they start with the idea that the challenge is the technology, not the people involved. They have that belief because they have challenged themselves and their own ideas within the known wisdom of the blind community. This has helped them to raise their own expectations, but in turn, they have helped to raise our expectations. The process of innovation sometimes rocks a lot more 
than the outcomes themselves. I use this example because it resonates with my own experience with coming to understand innovation. Remember, I told you I did not always know what could not be done. Now, I uh, was first declared uh, legally blind at age five. Growing up with a progressive uh, eye condition that slowly took away more eyesight, I got a lot of implicit and explicit messages about how critical eyesight was to success. I believed those messages, and I limited my own thinking and opportunities because of those messages. It was not until I found a community of blind people who believed in me more than I believed in myself and who shared their collective wisdom with me that I began to understand that the meaningful problem was not blindness, but the lack of innovative approaches to eliminating the artificial barriers in society. That put me on a journey of discovery. And that journey is continuing even today. And I hope that each of you are on that journey with me. It's never too late to learn that innovation rocks. 20 years ago, I attended my last annual meeting as a trustee of the American Printing House for the Blind. I wish I knew then what I know today about the wisdom of centering blind people, the power of innovation, and the strength of working together around that shared belief. I share that because some of you may still be wondering if there really is a place for you in our innovative community of people who have an infinite capacity to not know what can't be done. I assure you that your journey is not over. We need your talents in our work. And if you let us, we will rock you. 20 years ago, I took a position coordinating educational programs for the National Federation of the Blind in Baltimore just before we opened our research and training center, the NFB Jernigan Institute. At the grand opening of that facility, we had an exhibit of how a tactile interface could one day provide a blind person with access to real-time environmental information that would allow them 
to respond accordingly in order to drive a car independently. At that time, I thought the exhibit was a great marketing gimmick to get engineers interested in innovation for blind people. I did not believe the outcome was possible because I was not sure blind people, mostly myself, would be capable of performing the tasks required. I had no evidence. I had not tested the concepts. What I knew came from decades of internalizing misconceptions about what blind people could not do. In 2007, I became executive director of the National Federation of the Blind Jernigan Institute and our Blind Driver Challenge, as it is known. Came to be one of the project responsibilities that I had. One day, engineers from Virginia Tech University called and asked if I would come speak with them about their interest in a project to develop a blind drivable car. I made the long trip from Baltimore, Maryland to Blacksburg, Virginia, where I learned about the work happening there to build self-driving cars. They told me that they could easily put a blind person in one of these cars, have the blind person hit a button to initiate the self-driving mode, and achieve the goal of having a blind person drive a car. That was not consistent with what I knew about the lives of blind people and the level of independence and active participation that blind people desired. That was not innovation. We already faced too many situations where we were asked to simply sit and do nothing. Although I did not believe it was possible myself, I got up and told the engineers that we wanted to be able to drive. We wanted to get the information analyze it for ourselves, and then make our own driving decisions. I told them we wanted to be able to crash the car. <laughs> Innovation rocks, right? <laughs> that was not truly that we wanted to be able to crash the car, but if there was nothing real for the blind person to do, if it was not 
possible to crash the car, then we already believed it was not possible for blind people to drive the car. The team at Virginia Tech said they needed to start with something smaller than a car to prove the concept. Uh, in collaboration uh, with members of the Federation, we built non-visual interfaces into a little red dune buggy and uh, took it to a large-scale uh, program we had for blind youth at the University of Maryland. By the way, Larry Scutcon was part of that event. Um, for a week, we taught blind youth about engineering. And at the end, they got a chance to test the first blind drivable vehicle. Now, these blind students are the ones that opened my mind to this idea. They had not been taught that it was not possible, and they were eager to understand the patterns of information conveyed by the technology. I had a fresh solution but it meant nothing until I believed that humans were capable of utilizing that solution. It was at this time that I started telling people that when you start with the prospect that little is possible, it is impossible to get more than little accomplished. The next year, I was tasked with developing a plan to build non-visual interface technologies into a real street legal vehicle and testing the uh, interfaces with blind people. I was project managing the effort and making sure our Virginia Tech engineers were actually engaged with blind people to test their concepts. One day I was asked if I wanted to be one of the test drivers. Well, duh. <laughs> By this time, I knew there was more possible than uh, I had originally thought, but I still was a little unsure about whether I, as a blind person, could do it. The question was not the technology. It was completely whether I believed in myself. After weeks of testing and refining technology, giving the engineers feedback about the non-visual interfaces, and spending uh, more time driving off the road than on, the moment of truth came. We had uh, boldly declared seven months earlier that we would do our first public demonstration at the Daytona International Speedway at the end of January 2011. 
We had tested the technology for weeks, but there had always been a sighted engineer in the car. We told the engineers it was time to get out of the car. We had to determine if this was real. Did I believe in what was possible or what was not possible? Now, when you're going to drive for the first time, even in January, what do you do? I jumped in the driver's seat, rolled down the windows, and turned on the radio. <laughs> Roxanne came out by the police. <laughs> it pumped out of the speakers. I had made literally a hundred or more trips in the car using that technology, but the first time I did so without a non-blind person in the car, I was overwhelmed by the power of the experience. When I did so on the Daytona International Speedway, it transformed my understanding of what is possible. I no longer knew where the limits were for blind people. And I have lived that way every day since. It took me some time to truly understand why the experience was transformative. When my perspective was changed, when I challenged myself not to simply accept the well-accepted ideas, innovation happened within me. I can tell you, innovation rocks. I found this to be, I find this, excuse me, I find this to be the critical element in the blindness field today, between those who are rocking innovation and those who are disheartened with the field. We need to challenge ourselves every day to have confidence in centering blind people. We need to live in the world as both John Lennon and Henry Ford described it, knowing we do not know what can't be done by blind people. Now, for you non-blind people out there, don't get nervous. <laughs> this takes a leap of faith because society does not teach you to have confidence in the blind. However, blind people should not think just because we are blind that we are immune 
from internalizing that same limiting misunderstanding. From personal experience, I can tell you it is much more fun rocking innovation. I've had the opportunity to uh, explore what blind people would do in uh, outer space by taking a zero-gravity ride with the associate administrator of NASA, building non-visual interfaces for driving, been part of engineering the first mobile application giving blind people instant access to printed information, organizing a rally of young future blind leaders at the Lincoln Memorial, creating partnerships across the field that helped raise expectations for emerging professionals and even helping set two different Guinness World Records with thousands of other blind people. I could spend more time sharing my experience, but what you need to know is that every big innovative moment came about from hundreds of little personal interactions and commitments in rooms just like this. Rocking innovation is about the process, the journey, not always the outcome. It is about how much we change in the process of innovating that matters. You have a choice. You can be part of the innovation or you can be part of the archives. I'm Mark Riccobono, a blind person, living the life I want every day. My lived experience drives my dedication to rocking innovation with you every day because I know there is too much to be lost if we fail to keep the beat alive. In closing, uh, let's see who's ready to rock innovation with me. You have that choice. And if you are ready to make that commitment, join with me. See, we got a lot more people on board. Even the guide dogs, thanks. Thank you to the American Printing House for leading innovation. Securing equal protection under the law, the essential role of the organized blind movement by Eve Hill. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Eve Hill. Introduction by Mark Riccobono. Our next speaker is not blind, but she is one of those allies that we recognize as truly being blind at heart. 
She has built a very accomplished career of advocacy and legal work, impacting people with disabilities and many others. She brings to life in the law the lived experience of people with disabilities. At the end of last year, when our general counsel, Scott Labar, passed away, I asked her if she would take up work as our general counsel. I knew that she not only had the technical expertise, but she had the deep understanding within herself about who we are, why our movement exists, and what is needed to advance our cause. Law 360 recently named her one of the titans of the plaintiff's bar for 2023. In that article, they asked her why she is interested in civil rights. She answered the question by saying, Injustice makes me mad. Here, from Brown, Goldstein, and Levy, is Eve Hill. I want to start off talking about how honored I am to be the general counsel of the National Federation of the Blind and to try and follow in the footsteps of the great Scott Labar. I must admit, I knew Scott Labar, I loved Scott Labar, and I am not Scott Labar. But I will try my best every single day to follow in his footsteps. So one of the things President Riccobono suggested I talk to you a little bit about today is to let you get to know me a little bit more. But I hate talking about myself, so I objected. <laughs> but I agreed to talk about why I'm a disability rights lawyer working for the National Federation of the Blind. The first thing I want to talk about is some things that are not why I'm a disability rights lawyer, but that frame and help me uh, bring perspective to the work that I do for the NFB. My husband uses a wheelchair, and that is not why I'm a disability rights lawyer. I met my husband some 20 years after I became a disability rights lawyer. But the fact that my husband has a disability helps shape my approach to disability rights and the fact that I believe people with disabilities are their own experts, are their own best representatives, and really get to direct what should happen. In addition, I have my own disability. I have bipolar disorder, and that is not why I'm a disability rights lawyer. I was diagnosed some 10 years after I became a disability rights lawyer, but my own personal lived experience helps frame the way I approach disability rights and how I know that your disability doesn't define you just as my disability does not define me makes the difference in how we approach this work. Now, I grew up poor in rural Maine. And like many kids, I would often stomp my foot and complain that something wasn't fair. And my mother would sigh and say something like, life is not fair. And I would scream, fix it. <laughs> now, many, maybe most of us, grow out of that kind of tantrum, but not me. Righteous outrage is still my favorite emotion. I still stomp my foot and complain that it's not fair. And so I'm trying to spend some of my time on this planet trying to fix some of the things that aren't fair. And that's why I'm a disability rights lawyer. And that's why the National Federation of the Blind is the best partner imaginable in that effort. I've done a lot of things in the disability rights movement. I've worked for the Justice Department Civil Rights Division twice, both as a line attorney and as a member of the Obama administration. I've ran, thank you. 
I ran the Disability Rights Legal Center at Loyola Law School, where I did high-impact disability rights litigation and taught law students to be disability rights lawyers. I started the District of Columbia Government's Office of Disability Rights, working to make the district a model of inclusion of people with disabilities in government services. And I worked for the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse Universities. And in all of these positions, I worked to implement disability rights laws, whether by taking on impact litigation, writing a casebook, teaching law students, making city agencies comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or helping states support employment of people with disabilities in competitive, integrated employment and not sheltered workshops. But now, in the past, for the past six and a half years, I've been in practice, in private practice, at the fantastic law firm of Brown, Goldstein, and Levy, where I also run the Inclusivity Strategic Consulting Practice, and where I'm incredibly honored to serve as general counsel for the National Federation of the Blind. So I wanted to talk about why no other organization is as powerful in securing equal protection of the laws as the NFB and why, as a result, working for the NFB is the culmination of my career as a disability rights lawyer. The NFB has a long history of using and shaping the law to support the equal rights of blind people. NFB founder Jacobus Tenbrook was a leading lawyer and constitutional scholar who helped shape the interpretation of the United States Constitution to protect the rights of the blind. He used the law to demand the full range of rights and responsibilities of citizenship for blind people, and the NFB has been doing the same for over 80 years. Dr. Tenbrook and the NFB envisioned the principles that would eventually become the federal disability civil rights laws that we work under today and they incorporated those principles into their work long before the ADA was even a dream. And once the law began to reflect an equal rights framework for the blind, the NFB developed a legal program to implement it, shape it, and lead its development in the courts. Dr. Kenneth Jernigan and Dr. Mark Maurer developed what is now the NFB's robust legal program in the 1980s. At first, the legal program was primarily a defense against attacks on the organized blind movement, on the NFB itself, and on its leadership. And then Dr. Maurer hired the great Dan Goldstein. And this deserves applause. <laughs> My predecessor, mentor, and friend to take on affirmative challenges to the rights of blind people, including their rights under the Randolph Shepard Act, their rights to be parents, and their rights to equal right to employment. Now bear in mind that for the first few years of this program, there was no ADA. So the NFB's legal program had to be creative using state law, federal law, constitutional law, as well as the expertise of blind people who spoke up for themselves and each other and served as models to teach lawyers, judges, juries, and defendants about blind people. It also took quite a bit of chutzpah to challenge discrimination and support equal rights for people with blind people, for equal rights for blind people before the law was all set up in our favor. Now, the NFB and the legal program in its current form really began around 1999. 
when Dr. Maurer recognized that the emergence of digital technology offered a tremendous opportunity, but also a huge potential risk for blind people. My friend Dan Goldstein remembers the conversation in which Dr. Maurer noted that in his house, he was able to independently access his thermostat, his kitchen appliances, and everything else he needed to control his environment because everything had a tactile element. But if he moved to a new house, all those things would be digital and controlled by things like touch screens and would be inaccessible to him. Technology that should make life easier and better for blind people was being rolled out with en without any consideration of the blind and as a result was making life harder and less accessible. So Dr. Maurer, not one to play small ball, asked Dan to get the attention of the folks developing these emerging technologies. And as a result, the National Federation of the Blind sued America Online, at the time, the biggest player in the internet, challenging their inaccessibility. And they followed that suit with a suit against Diebold, challenging inaccessible ATMs, and a suit against Target for its inaccessible website. And the NFB has led the fight for digital accessibility for nearly 25 years now. <clears throat> the NFB has brought suits challenging Amazon's inaccessible Kindle e-readers, Travelocity, Monster.com, H&R Block, twice, and Scribd, among others. These cases establish the application of the ADA to business websites, educational technology, employment technology, digital books, and other forms of technology. It's fair to say that without the NFB, the internet and the other digital technologies that are everywhere in our world now would be completely inaccessible to this day. In one of its most significant victories, the NFB in the Hattie Trust case also established that making materials accessible for blind people is a fair use under the copyright law. So there is no excuse for the law standing in the way of digital literacy for the blind. And as other disability rights advocates say to me all the time, thank goodness for the NFB. Now, the NFB understood how the ADA should apply to the internet, even though no one had thought about it before, and how it should apply to digital technology. And the NFB's legal program developed the legal framework for applying the ADA to that technology across contexts of employment, education, government services, and public accommodations. And the NFB and its lawyers and members persuaded courts across the country to adopt that legal framework. Since then, under the leadership of President Riccobono, the NFB legal program has grown. The legal program today takes a strategic approach, approach to making systemic change. It has established priorities of access to digital technology, employment, education, civic participation, healthcare, and the Randolph Shepard program. And the NFB's legal program takes on some of the most important legal issues facing blind people from challenging employment discrimination, to ensuring blind people are not separated from their children, to making electronic books and the internet accessible, to challenging sheltered workshops and sub-minimum wage, 
to ensuring new transportation mechanisms work for the blind. <clears throat> and the NFB's legal program takes cases that make a systemic impact and that reach results that create precedents and models that apply far beyond any individual case. Our cases have ripple effects beyond the, the individual case. The power of the organized blind to make change through legal action has been evident to me in the years I've worked alongside the NFB, including the six and a half years I've been at BGL. We've advocated successfully for accessible electronic absentee voting in over a dozen states. As a direct result of NFB's work, blind people in Maryland, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Maine, New York, Virginia, North Dakota, Tennessee, Illinois, and very soon, Bear County, Texas, can vote absentee, privately, and independently. The NFB has established the right to accessible websites for everything from retail stores to fast food to tax preparation to travel to voting to federal government services. We've established the right of blind federal employees to actually enforce their rights under Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. And we've established the right to have other technologies be accessible as well from ATMs, to kiosks, to voting machines, to e-book devices, to restaurant ordering devices. And we will keep insisting on accessibility of all emerging technologies, including those that use artificial intelligence. We've also fought for the right to have important information communicated in accessible formats, such as Braille, large print, and accessible electronic formats. We required the IRS to make tax information available to blind people in accessible formats. And right now, we are challenging the University of North Carolina healthcare system to make important healthcare information and medical billing information accessible, and we're waiting for an order from the court. And the NFB has stood up and continues to stand up for the employment rights of blind people challenging inaccessible workplace technology at Amazon, Comcast, Williams-Sonoma, federal agencies, and others, just to name a few that are kind of ongoing now. And we've challenged the discriminatory attitudes and policies of employers that refuse to hire blind people because of their misconceptions of blindness, such as employers who believe blind people can't be childcare providers or teachers. We've challenged the prejudices that lead government agencies and employers to relegate blind people to segregated subminimum wage workshops, sheltered workshops. And the NFB has stood up over and over again for the rights of blind parents. We take on these cases in the face of state agencies acting on prejudices and stereotypes to try to take children away in the face of public agencies making uninformed decisions about blind foster and adoptive parents, and in the faces of spouses and courts relying on prejudice to decide child custody. And then the NFP recognizes the crucial importance of education, and its legal program fights discrimination in public education, higher education, testing, and credentialing. 
Just recently, you've all heard about our case against the Los Angeles Community College District, which went to trial twice uh, and culminated in a verdict uh, finding that LACCD discriminated against stu students Roy Pyan and Portia Mason by failing to purchase and use accessible technology and awarded the two plaintiffs over $240,000 in damages. The NFB has also reached comprehensive accessibility outcomes with schools like Florida State University and Miami University, but the fight continues. Right now, the NFB and three brilliant blind students are challenging Oregon State University's failure to make course materials accessible. And we're challenging discrimination against blind students by the Harvard Kennedy School and by the Berkeley College of Music. So what is it that makes the NFB special and especially effective in advocating for equal rights? I talked to several advocates about this, actually, and it's a combination of factors. One is the NFB is the voice of the nation's blind. <clears throat> the NFB speaks for real blind people and reflects your priorities and principles. It has legitimacy when it sets priorities and takes on cases. And anyone who misunderstands that the NFB is advocating for anything less than justice for the blind does so at their peril. And the NFB is brave. It is willing to take on the biggest companies, the biggest government agencies, including scary ones like the FBI. Uh, we will even challenge entities that are supposed to be our allies when they fail to do their jobs, as we did with the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. And the NFB is willing to use litigation as a tool and to take cases all the way to judgment and even appeal in order to reach binding and precedential decisions. The, the NFB... The NFB will not accept halfway settlements that don't actually fix the problem, even if the other side offers cash. And the NFB is not afraid of losing a case. It recognizes, as Dr. Maurer often has said, we may lose the battle, but we don't lose the war because we don't stop fighting until we win. <clears throat> The NFB is creative. It will color outside the lines when necessary, like it did when it intervened as a defendant when the Authors Guild sued the Hathi Trust to prevent digital books from being made accessible to the blind. The NFB takes cases for the right reasons and insists on resolutions that further those reasons. Justice for the individual plaintiffs is important, but the NFB's insistence on public settlements is one of the most important aspects of its legal program. Each decision, settlement, or other outcome is available for others to learn from and acts as a precedent and a deterrent for other entities. And the NFB is bold. The organized blind movement is not going to wait around for somebody else to take on its battles. The blind stand up for themselves and for each other. While the NFB compromises when it makes sense, it doesn't compromise its principles. 
And as President Riccobono reminds me often, the NFB will not pull its punches. Speaking of President Riccobono, the NFB's leadership is another reason the legal pro program here is so incredibly powerful. Judges and defendants often push you to accept half measures or to let go of your legal principles, but President Riccobono and the board of directors of the NFB never lose sight of the point of every case. They hold tight to the principles of NFB's mission. And finally, the reason the NFB is such a powerful force is that the NFB is you. You are the real experts on blindness. You are the best clients in existence. You're willing to be plaintiffs and stand up for principles. You're willing to stick it out all the way to get the right result, and you don't give up halfway through. And you are outstanding representatives of the blind community. Your actions and your credibility educate defendants and judges and juries better than any lawyer can. In short, the NFB is extraordinary. I will also note that the NFB has some pretty great lawyers working with Tim Elder, Al Elia, Lauren McClarney, Jesse Weber, Sharon Crever Weisbaum, Andy Freeman, and others is an amazing privilege. <clears throat> I want to leave you with a thought from President Obama that really embodies the NFB for me. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Thank you to the NFB for everything you do. The 2024 Blind Educator of the Year Award by Robin House. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Robin House. From the editor, Robin House has many initials after her name for her educational credentials, MED, LPC, RPT. In other words, she holds a Master of Education, is a licensed professional counselor, and a registered play therapist. Selected as our Blind Educator of the Year in 2018, Robin now chairs the NFB's 2024 Blind Educator of the Year Award Selection Committee. What is harder to convey is that, for the tremendous admiration we have for her accomplishments, the thing that makes us blessed is that Robin is Robin and that she chooses to be an active part of us. This is what she says. A number of years ago, the Blind Educator of the Year Award was established by the National Organization of Blind Educators, the Educators Division of the National Federation of the Blind, to pay tribute to a blind teacher whose exceptional classroom performance, notable community service, and uncommon commitment to the NFB merit national recognition. Beginning with the 1991 presentation, this award became an honor bestowed by our entire movement. This change reflects our recognition of the importance of good teaching and the effect an outstanding blind teacher has on students, faculty, community, and all blind Americans. This award is presented in the spirit of the outstanding educators who founded and have continued to nurture the National Federation of the Blind and who, by example, have imparted knowledge of our strengths to us and raised our expectations. We have learned from Dr. Jacobus Tenbrook, Dr. Kenneth Jernigan, Dr. Mark Maurer, and our current president, Mark Rigobono, that a teacher not only provides a student with information, but also provides guidance, advocacy, and love. 
The recipient of the Blind Educator of the Year Award must exhibit all these traits and must advance the cause of blind people in the spirit and philosophy of the National Federation of the Blind. The Blind Educator of the Year Award is presented at the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind. Honorees must be present to receive an appropriately inscribed plaque and a check for $1,000. Nominations should be sent to Ms. Robin House by email to robin at mindsrealm, M-I-N-D-S-R-E-A-L-M, dot net, or by mail to S-T-I-X-E-C-C, 647 Tower Grove Avenue, St. Louis, Missouri, 63110. Letters of nomination must be accompanied by a copy of the nominee's current resume and supporting documentation of community and federation activity. All nomination materials must be in the hands of the committee chairperson by May 1, 2024, to be considered for this year's award. For further information, contact Robin House at 314-265-6852 or Robin at MindsRealm, M-I-N-D-S-R-E-A-L-M, dot net. Shattering Injustice and Raising Expectations Dedication to Equality by a Blind Attorney by Carla Gilbride A photo appears on the page, the caption, Carla Gilbride. From the Editor At the time of this presentation, Carla Gilbride was being considered for a position on the United States Court of Appeals. She now holds that position. Here is what President Riccobono said prior to her introduction at the 2023 National Convention. Our next speaker is another outstanding champion of equal rights, and she's not afraid of taking on the biggest of the corporations or government bad actors to address injustice. She also happens to be a blind woman, uh, simply striving to live the life she wants. She graduated with honors from Georgetown uh, Law in 2007 and has, in a very short time, made a difference. She's a member of the bar in New York, California, in the District of Columbia, as well as several federal district courts, the United States Supreme Court, and several courts of appeal. Uh, most recently, she was the co-director for the Access to Justice Project at Public Justice, where she worked for nearly a decade. Her work, and this will resonate with feder Federation members, her work is described as focusing on dismantling structural barriers that make it more difficult for people harmed by corporations or governments, uh, government abuse, to use the civil courts to redress those injustices and get change. In May of 2022, she won a significant victory in a fight against forced arbitration in a case that she argued before the United States Supreme Court. I am not aware of another uh, blind attorney who has argued and won a case in front of the Supreme Court. So 
She has uh, done her work in a way that has set precedent uh, in, a, in a very motivating way. Uh, she's worked closely on a number of Federation matters, but most recently her uh, leadership, she led the arguments uh, in the Court of Appeals on behalf of Joe Orozco, which we discussed in the presidential report. I could talk for a long time about the, the many achievements that she's made in uh, what is still a quite young career. Um, I do want you to know, however, that she has been nominated by the President of the United States to serve as the General Counsel for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And this is a nomination that the Federation has enthusiastically supported. I just went over to her and asked if she was, if her, if she was confirmed yet. She said, not yet. So we'll see at the end if you all still agree she should be uh, confirmed by the Senate. I should also share with you that it's not just her uh, tremendous uh, work in the legal field. She uh, is described as an avid baseball fan a fantasy baseball nerd, and she enjoys hiking, cycling, and goalball. Maybe she can give maybe she can give me some pointers on throwing the first pitch in a couple days. Here's a true champion for equal rights and equal responsibility who's driven by her lived experience. Here's Carla Gilbride. Good morning, everyone. And thank you to President Riccobono for inviting me here to speak with you all today. As a young child, I was convinced that I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, mind you, I didn't have a very good idea what it was that lawyers did, but I knew that I loved words, and I loved using words to get my way. Um, my dad used to make a joke about this. He would say, she's going to be a great lawyer someday because the judge will be so tired of hearing her argue that they'll let her win just to shut her up. <laughs> but even though my aspirations to being a lawyer went all the way back to childhood, I couldn't have imagined them. I couldn't have imagined as a law student. I couldn't have imagined as recently as three years ago that I would have the opportunity to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. As I'll talk about a little bit later, um, making an argument there is very rare. Most lawyers never get the chance to do it. And I'm not aware of a totally blind lawyer who's ever argued there before I did so last year. So in thinking about... In preparing to speak to you all about that experience, I had occasion to reflect on what brought me to that juncture and what traits and tools made it possible for me to seize that opportunity when it came my way. And I decided it boiled down to three things. I have a stubborn streak. 
I have strong blindness skills, and I have a passion to fight against injustice. So going back to the stubborn streak, uh, that also dates back to early childhood. And when I was young, it was really nothing more, more complex than that rebellious instinct a lot of little kids have to do the opposite of whatever the adults around them tell them to do. And as a general matter, I, I wouldn't recommend that because usually the adults in our lives are telling us things that are good for us. But I've been totally blind since I was two years old. And many of us in the room who were blind as children may have had similar experiences to me that sometimes the adults around you are telling you things that are not good for your development. Uh, such as, oh, you can just skip that assignment. It would probably be too hard for you anyway. Or, oh, it would be dangerous for you to do that phys ed activity. Why don't you just go sit on the sidelines and, and we'll get to you later. And when the adults in my life said those kinds of things to me, my stubborn streak flared up and I wanted to find a way to do the things they said I couldn't or shouldn't do. Or, as the child me would have put it, oh yeah, I'll show you. And fortunately for me, I had parents who were fierce advocates, and if they ever witnessed or heard from me about these sorts of incidents, um, they made clear to that gym teacher or that extracurricular activity leader that low expectations were not acceptable and that I would be included in whatever the other kids were doing. And I was fortunate that the administration in my public school also provided me with the supports and services that I needed. Uh, another thing I'm very grateful to my parents for was that they exposed me to a lot of positive, successful adult blind role models, including members of the National Federation of the Blind. And those blind adults impressed upon me the importance of gaining a strong foundation in blindness skills like Braille and technology. And I had the good sense to listen to what those adults told me. Uh, so I, I became a proficient Braille user. I learned to use the computer and the internet early in my educational career. And so with those skills in hand, I went off to college after receiving a scholarship from the NFB in 1998. And when I came to the National Convention to receive that scholarship, I also had the opportunity uh, to observe a mock trial and watch, uh, watch blind lawyers like Scott Labar in action. And that just reinforced for me that this club of blind lawyers was one I definitely wanted to belong to. So throughout college and law school, as I gained more experience, I was also exposed to many people from different backgrounds and different life experiences than my own and with different disabilities. And through getting to know those people and, and uh, learning more about their stories, I gained 
a more sophisticated understanding of the different identities that we all carry and the different forms of discrimination that we all face. And I also came to appreciate that growing up as a white person in an affluent uh, town on Long Island in a well-funded school district had afforded me a lot of advantages that many of my peers hadn't had and that the history of injustice and access to opportunity in this country is far more complicated and far more painful than just my gym teacher telling me to sit on the sidelines. But even as my understanding of discrimination deepened and became more expansive, I never forgot what it felt like viscerally to be held apart, to be treated as less than others. And as I became a practicing lawyer, I would tap into those personal experiences and the feelings that they evoked in me and that they still evoke in me when, when I experience discrimination to this day, for example, when I'm denied service from a rideshare driver with my guide dog, which happens all the time. And so I would tap into those experiences and those feelings to help me better relate to my clients who had experienced different but equally unjust mistreatment, whether it was being sexually harassed by a coworker or being passed over for promotion because they were black. That ability to empathize and have solidarity with others who experience mistreatment has made me a better lawyer. It's fueled my passion to fight against injustice. Because I do agree with what Dr. King said in his letter from a Birmingham jail, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And because I hold that belief, um, after I had spent three years working as a lawyer at Disability Rights Advocates in Berkeley, California, um, yeah, California, um, working on disability discrimination cases, I decided to move back east, where my family is from, and to take a job at a law firm in DC that handles all sorts of employment and housing discrimination cases. And ever since 2011, I've been practicing law in DC, uh, either at plaintiff's firms or public interest organizations, with a focus on workers' rights, uh, both for discrimination and for people who are not being paid properly for their work. And so that workers', workers rights practice eventually led me in 2021 to meet Robin Morgan. And Robin was working at a Taco Bell franchise in Iowa. And she realized that she and her coworkers were not being paid overtime as the law requires when they worked more than 40 hours in a week. And so she filed a lawsuit uh, on behalf of herself and her coworkers. And initially, she was successful. But on appeal, the decision was reversed. And this, this had to do with some Complex legal stuff I'm not getting in, into involving forced arbitration. It said she couldn't be in court at all. She needed to go to a private arbitrator. Uh, the lawyers who had handled her case in the district court came to public justice, which is where I was working at the time, 
They had a, we have a lot of experience of public justice working on these issues. And they said, you know, the only step left for Robin's case, because we lost at the Court of Appeals, is to take it to the US Supreme Court. We'd like you to handle the case. And my boss at public justice said, well, Carla, you have a lot of experience working on these particular legal issues. So if we handle, the, if we decide to go forward in the Supreme Court, I think you should handle the case. And so I sat there for a minute, and there was this little voice inside my head said, whoa. Um, now I, I know the law in this area. I think we have a good chance of winning. But it's the Supreme Court. And as I said before, not a lot of people ever get a chance to argue there. Um, there's a, they only take about 80 cases a year. And those 80 cases tend to be handled by a very few repeat player Supreme Court uh, advocates who, who appear there over and over again. But my passion to fight against injustice prevailed over my doubts, and I thought that you know, what had happened to Robin wasn't right. There was something that we could do about it. And so I said, yes, let's take the case. And so we filed our petition. Now, the Supreme Court didn't have to take it. But a couple months later, we found out that they had taken it. And we were off to the races. And that was in November of 2021. And then a few weeks after that, I found out that Taco Bell had hired to argue the case on their side one of those repeat player Supreme Court advocates who has been up there over and over again. Um, for those who know the, you know, know the law, you might know his name. His name is Paul Clement. And at that time, he had argued over 100 cases before the US Supreme Court. And so at that point, those, that little voice inside my head that had said, whoa, it got a little bit louder. And it got, a, it got some company, and there were a lot of little voices suddenly asking a lot of questions. What if you're not ready for this? What if you're not smart enough? What if you can't think on your feet as well as someone who's argued up there a 100 times? Um, and then it took a really toxic turn. Um, these other thoughts came to the forefront. What if you go up there on this big stage and it doesn't go well, and people think, well, after all, what do you expect? She's blind. Luckily, just as that spiral of self-doubt was starting to take hold, that old stubborn streak flared up again. And it had something to say to all of those nagging negative thoughts swirling around my head. It said, oh yeah, I'll show you. And so I buckled down and I got back to preparing the case. And that preparation meant reading lots and lots of previous cases, which I did using JAWS. That preparation also involved listening to lots and lots of archival audio of past Supreme Court arguments. Luckily, uh, Paul Clement had a large body of work, so I had a lot I could listen to. And 
the other thing you know that was helpful and that why I wanted to listen to all of these arguments was to to try to memorize the voices of the different justices since each of them has their own legal philosophy and way of approaching cases, it was very instructive for me to know who was asking me a question so that I could know how best to respond to it. Another thing I did to prepare was I put together a list of the most important cases and quotes that I wanted to have literally at my fingertips at the lectern that I could refer to in Braille as I was making my argument or as I was responding to questions. And having two or three pages of Braille notes is something that I've been doing, making a, a common practice whenever I do a court argument, whether a trial or appellate court. But a new thing that I hadn't done in every argument before, but that I wanted to be able to do at the Supreme Court argument, was to have a way of taking notes when Mr. Clement was arguing. Um, since I, we were the petitioner, we, had, we would go first. We had brought the case to the court, so we would go first. Then Mr. Clement would, would have his argument time, and I would get the last word in rebuttal. And so I wanted to have a, a reliable way of taking notes so that I could make that rebuttal. And I thought about bringing up a Braille display, but then I was worried, you know, what if the technology fails at a really inopportune moment? So I dug back into my old bag of tricks from blindness schools, skills I hadn't really uh, worked on since high school, and I brushed up on my slate and stylus skills. So a couple of weeks before the argument was scheduled, I, I called the Supreme Court to let them know I was bringing this slate and stylus into the building. I figured they wouldn't really know what it was, and I didn't want to get a problem with security. And I also asked them what accommodation they could make for their clock, which has a couple of different lights that come on, a yellow light when you have a couple minutes left, and then a red light when you're out of time. And I asked them, could they provide some sort of an audible tone? Did they have a non-visual uh, component to their system for people who are arguing who can't see those, those colored lights? And they said, huh, well, we haven't thought about that. This hasn't come up before, but we'll come up with something. And they did. They did come up with something. What they did was they had uh, a court employee sit at a table and physically ring a bell when the light came on for yellow, when the light came on for red. So the day of the argument came, and it really went by in a blur. Um, it lasted about a, an hour, but it felt much shorter than that because of all the adrenaline that was coursing through my veins. But it was actually surprisingly enjoyable to sort of be, be um, engaging, going back and forth with the justices. And before I knew it, the bell rang, and it was time to sit down. And I just sort of sat there in disbelief, thinking, did I just really do that? Um, <laughs> One thing that was strange about the argument because of the COVID protocols that were in place at the time in, in early 2022, there were, was um, no public admitted into the court. So it was just the lawyers, the justices, and a very few court staff. One of the people who was there was the official court uh, sketch artist who draws pictures of the people arguing each case. And this, uh, those sketches, because photographs aren't allowed in the court, 
Uh, those sketches are what will accompany any media account or article that's ever published about the case later. And I was so proud and so moved that the day after my argument, the official sketch appeared, which showed me standing at the lectern speaking with my hands on my braille notes. And um, a handy little explanatory caption arrow pointing to my fingers with a note reading braille. And so now, in the official archives of uh, the Supreme Court, there will always be that documentation. <laughs> that in March of 2022, a blind person argued at the Supreme Court, and they used Braille to do it. And as proud as I am of that, uh, I was equally proud two months later in May when in a unanimous 9-0 opinion, the court ruled for Robin Morgan and I was able to do my part to help her get the justice that she deserves. Um, but as proud as I am of, of all of that, I will be even more proud when I get to hear the next blind lawyer argue a case at the U.S. Supreme Court. And what I really hope is that after two and three and four and five blind lawyers um, walk that path, the Supreme Court will decide to invest in some technological solution like a, a tone or a tactile buzzer for their visible light system because they realize there are so many of us blind people arguing that just having a person ring the bell each time is not a good solution. But this isn't just a story about the Supreme Court, and I am certainly um, didn't say yes to, to coming here today to speak to you just to congratulate myself and say, yay me, I did a good thing. I came here and I'm sharing this story with you because I know that many, if not all of you, will in the future experience a situation where you will have voices of self-doubt inside your head like the ones that I described earlier. And sometimes those voices aren't just coming from inside our heads. Sometimes they're coming from out there in the world telling us we shouldn't do this, we can't do that. No blind person has ever done this before, so what makes you think you can do, be the first? And when those voices come into your lives, whether they're external or internal or both, I hope that by sharing my story with you today, I will have given more strength and more conviction and more force to your own voice when you are able to answer back, oh yeah, I'll show you. Because we can all do more than other people think we're capable of. 
We can all do more than we often believe ourselves that we're capable of. And we can do even more when we support and lift up one another. And that spirit of mutual support and solidarity is one of the things that I admire most about this organization, especially when it's directed to those who are newly blind or to the next generation coming up. I am so grateful to everyone who has supported and encouraged me along my journey, including people who are here in the room today and others who are no longer with us. And I am honored to do what I can to pay it forward in the years ahead. Thank you all so much. Social Security Disability Insurance and Supplemental Security Income Updates for 2024 by Jesse Shirek. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Jesse Shirek. On October 12, 2023, the Social Security Administration announced a 3.2% cost of living increase for 2024. Before we dig into the details of how these changes will affect beneficiaries, let me take you down a side road, back to the glorious summer of 1996. If you are young enough that you were not yet alive in 1996, I am sorry you missed out. We all rushed out to watch Independence Day to see if Will Smith had the courage to save us all from being destroyed by an alien invasion. We could not control our urges to dance the Macarena at every wedding reception and graduation party. And most importantly, we could not stop the Spice Girls from telling us what they really, really want. Simultaneously, I became old enough to vote. This important moment in my life was sandwiched between graduating from high school and a less-than-successful effort at attending the University of North Dakota. Being 18 also meant that I was no longer legally dependent on my parents and would qualify for Supplemental Security Income, SSI. Doing some quick Googling helped me remember that the SSI payment amount in 1996 was $470 per month. In my 18-year-old brain, this meant that I was now rich beyond measure, because I could live out my rock star dreams and afford my new dream electric guitar. A sparkling new lime green Ibanez with a maple neck and a 15-watt Marshall practice amplifier, with all of the knobs turned to 11. My ears are still ringing from the glorious sounds produced by that superb instrument. Let us get out of the proverbial wheat field and back on the path towards discussing SSI. Most of the regulations that I had to follow were logical. You can read the highlights further down in this article. There is one aspect to receiving SSI that I did not yet understand. The Social Security Administration, SSA, required me to pay 30% of my SSI check to my parents to cover rent because the government stated that my parents' house would be my permanent address and my university address would be temporary. This error was discovered after I had been receiving payments for one year, resulting in an $1,800 overpayment. The Social Security Administration took the position that, because I did not pay my parents $150 a month in rent for 12 months, I must return the $1,800 to the SSA, even if I did not know this was a requirement. It is easy to grasp the importance of following the requirements, but far less easy to be aware of and stay current on the law and rules you really need to know. That's where the National Federation of the Blind Benefits Advocacy Strategy can help. Meet our group. Our advocacy work in this area is coordinated through our national office and includes a number of key experts. Jesse Shirek, author of this article, is a governmental affairs specialist in our advocacy and policy department. 
Jesse has served as the North Dakota Affiliate President on the National Scholarship Committee and in a variety of roles in the New Mexico, North Dakota, and Maryland affiliates. He has spent the majority of his career working in rehabilitation before coming to work for the National Federation of the Blind in 2021. Jesse transitioned to government affairs in May 2023, where he is the primary point of contact for key advocacy priorities including SSI, SSDI, ABLE accounts, veterans' administration issues, and autonomous vehicles. James Gashel led the Federation's government relations efforts for 33 years, then served 13 more years on the board of directors. In retirement, he is our Hawaii State Affiliate Secretary, State Legislative Chair, and NFB Honolulu Chapter President. We are fortunate that he continues to keep up with important Social Security matters and volunteers his expertise in Federation benefits appeals when needed. Andrew Sindler is an attorney in private practice and the newest contributor to our advocacy group. From his law office near Annapolis, Maryland, he handles claims at all levels from initial application filing all the way through federal court appeals when necessary. For nearly 20 years, Andrew has successfully and passionately represented local and national claimants in a wide variety of Social Security disability and SSI claims. These include childhood claims, disabled adult child claims, continuing disability reviews, and cessation of benefits cases, overpayments, and recomputation of benefits using the blindness disability freeze. If you have questions related to your SSI and SSDI benefits, or if you are seeking help, contact Jesse Shirick by phone at 410-659-9314, extension 2348, or by email at jshirek, J-S-H-I-R-E-K, at nfb.org. Our group will do its best to help with emphasis on prioritizing assistance to active members of the National Federation of the Blind. Annual adjustments to the Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, and Supplemental Security Income, SSI programs. In 2024, approximately 70 million Americans will see a 3.2% cost-of-living adjustment, COLA, increase in their benefit amounts. Thus, come January, monthly checks will be higher. The 2024 amounts are below, along with some general concepts pertaining to the Social Security and Medicare programs, in case you want to better understand or refresh yourself about your rights. The COLA is based on the Consumer Price Index, CPI-W, which measures the rate of inflation against the wages earned by the approximately 173 million workers across the nation over the previous four quarters, starting with the third quarter of the previous year. Tax Rates FICA and Self-Employment Tax Rates If you are employed, you know that you do not bring home everything you earn. For example, 7.65% of your pay is deducted to cover your contribution to the Old Age, Survivors, and Disability Insurance, OASDI, Trust Funds, and the Medicare Hospital Insurance, HI, Trust Funds. 6.2% covers OASDI, and 1.45% is contributed to the HI Trust Funds. Additionally, your employer is required to match this 7.65% for a grand total of 15.3%. For those who are self-employed, there is no employer to match the 7.65%, which means a self-employed individual pays the entire 15.3% of their income. These numbers will not change in 2024, regardless of whether an individual is employed or self-employed. As of January 2024, individuals with earned income of more than $200,000, $250,000 for married couples filing jointly, pay an additional 0.9% in Medicare taxes. 
This does not include the above amounts. Maximum Taxable Earnings There is a ceiling on taxable earnings for the OASDI Trust Fund, which was $160,200 in 2023 and will increase to $168,600 in 2024. Thus, for earnings above $168,600, there is no 6.2% deducted for OASDI. As for Medicare, there is no limit on taxable earnings for the HI Trust Fund. Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, Quarters of Coverage The OASDI Trust Fund is kind of like an insurance policy. You have to pay a premium to participate. Therefore, to qualify for retirement, survivors, or disability insurance benefits, an individual must pay a minimum amount of FICA taxes into the OASDI Trust Fund by earning a sufficient number of calendar quarters to become fully insured for Social Security benefits. In 2023, credit for one quarter of coverage was awarded for any individual who earned at least $1,640 during the year, which means that an individual would need to earn at least $6,560 to be credited with four quarters of coverage. In 2024, the amount increases to $1,730 for one calendar quarter or $6,920 to earn four quarters of coverage for the year. A maximum of four quarters can be awarded for any calendar year, and it makes no difference when the income is earned during that year. Basically, the taxes you pay into the OASDI and HI trust funds are your premiums to take part in the Social Security and Medicare programs. The total number of quarters required to be eligible for benefits depends on the individual's age. The older the individual, the more quarters are required. Furthermore, a higher average income during an individual's lifetime means a higher Social Security or SSDI check when benefits start. Remember, the above-quoted numbers for quarters of coverage to become fully insured are only minimum amounts. Trial Work Period, TWP This concept is often misunderstood. The amount of earnings required to use a trial work month is not based on the earnings limit for blind beneficiaries, but instead on the National Average Wage Index. In 2023, the amount required to use a TWP month was only $1,050, and this amount will increase to $1,110 in 2024. If you are self-employed, you can also use a trial work month if you work more than 80 hours in your business, and this limitation will not change unless expressly adjusted. Substantial Gainful Activity, SGA The earnings limit for a blind beneficiary in 2023 was $2,460 per month, and will increase to $2,590 in 2024. Again, it's important to remember, this is not the amount of money an individual makes to use a trial month. This is to say that the TWP can be exhausted even if your income is well below $2,590 per month. See the above information about the TWP. In 2024, a blind SSDI beneficiary who earns $2,590 or more in a month before taxes but after subtracting unincurred business expenses for the self-employed, subsidized income for the employed, and impairment-related work expenses, will be deemed to have exceeded SGA and will likely no longer be eligible for SSDI benefits. Supplemental Security Income, SSI The standard federal monthly payment amount for individuals receiving SSI was $914 in 2023, and will increase to $943 in 2024. For married couples, the standard federal monthly payment amount of SSI will increase from $1,371 to $1,415. Student Earned Income Exclusion 
In 2023, the monthly amount was $2,220 and will increase to $2,290 in 2024. The annual amount was $8,950 in 2023 and will be $9,230 in 2024. The asset limits under the SSI program will remain unchanged at $2,000 per individual and $3,000 per married couple. If you find yourself approaching the SSI asset limit, I urge you to continue reading the next section regarding ABLE accounts. ABLE Act We are coming up on the nine-year anniversary of the signing of the Achieving a Better Life Experience ABLE Act, which was enacted on December 19, 2014. The ABLE Act has a significant impact on resource limits associated with the SSI and Medicaid programs for people who became blind or disabled by the age of 26. Traditionally, SSI beneficiaries have been required to adhere to strict resource limits, such as a maximum of $2,000 in the bank for an individual receiving SSI benefits. Under the ABLE Act, however, the amount held in an ABLE account can be much higher than the $2,000 resource limit. ABLE account contributions must be designated specifically for purposes such as education, housing, employment training and support, assistive technology, health, prevention and wellness, financial management, legal fees, and funeral and burial expenses. Check with your financial institution of choice for a status of ABLE Act regulations in a specific state and to see if an ABLE account is right for you. It is important to note that SSI beneficiaries should consider the many other purposes not subject to the traditional resource limits when making ABLE account contributions, since there are also tax advantages associated with ABLE accounts. If you are seeking more information about the topic of ABLE accounts, you can reach out to Government Affairs Specialist Jesse Shearick at 410-659-9314, extension 2348. Alternatively, visit https colon slash slash www.ablenrc.org. From California to Illinois, Powered by Braille, by Rachel Held. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Rachel Held. Photo 2, the caption, Dan O'Rourke with Pam Allen and Robert Steigel at the Santa Monica Route 66, end of the trail sign. From the editor, Rachel Held is the coordinator of outreach in the office of the president. Here she gives us another beautiful view of Dan O'Rourke's Ride for Literacy. This summer, the National Federation of the Blind partnered with longtime NHL referee Dan O'Rourke to spread the word about Braille literacy across Route 66. Dan traded in his skates for some pedals and biked over 2,700 miles from Santa Monica, California to Chicago, Illinois, over the span of six weeks. His wife April and their dog Bailey followed behind in an RV. With his family in tow, we're reminded that Dan's motivation started at home. His father, Tom, never let his declining vision get in the way of his independence, and that dedication to our mission inspired Dan to take up this challenge and bike for Braille literacy. Along the way, Dan stopped in six different cities to gather with NFB members and their communities. They participated in everything from spray paint art at Cadillac Ranch in Texas to tandem bike riding in Arizona. Bringing out members old and new, Dan's ride was an exciting motivator for chapters and affiliates to get together and build new connections. The goal of this partnership and ride was to raise funds for and increase awareness around Braille literacy, especially for young blind students. Helping us to further the reach of our Braille literacy programs, such as the NFB Bell Academy, the Ride for Literacy raised over $50,000. We are so thankful to Dan and our NFB family and friends for achieving this goal. Dan even inspired his father to start learning Braille. 
When asked about her husband's incredible commitment to this ride, April O'Rourke said, You never know what can happen each day, and I'm so proud of Dan for keeping our days interesting for such a great reason. Dan attributes his success to the kids he met at our NFB Bell Academy programs. He was inspired, particularly, by the words of encouragement from one young student who said, I think you're going to come up against some big hills, and there's going to be some hard days, but every time you pedal, that's progress, and progress is progress. We at the NFB know what progress means. Since 1940, we have led the organized blind movement courageously and never tired of the fight for inclusion. With increased rates of Braille literacy at our fingertips, we will inspire the next generation of blind leaders. Like Dan, we will never stop moving forward in our goals to raise expectations and achieve equity for blind people in schools, the workforce, and communities. O'Rourke completes six-week fundraising bike ride for blind by Emily Benjamin. Reprinted with permission from NHL.com, September 8, 2023. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Dan O'Rourke smiles as he holds his NFB member coin. Through all the weeks that Dan O'Rourke spent on his bike, six to be exact, all the road rash and flat tires, the broken fan belt on his RV, the searing temperatures and the early mornings, the longer-than-planned stopover in Joplin, Missouri, there have been so many victories. The people he has met along the way, the stories he has heard, the word he has spread, the money he has raised. But it's possible that nothing compares to the news the longtime NHL referee received recently from his dad, the reason he got on his bike in the first place for a 2,500-mile ride along Route 66 from Santa Monica, California, to Chicago, raising money for the National Federation of the Blind. He's decided to take the challenge on of learning Braille at 75 years old, said O'Rourke, who has been an official in the NHL since 1999 and who will report to officials' training camp Sunday. If that's all that came of this, then it was worth it. O'Rourke's father, Tom, and his grandfather both suffered vision loss with his father diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, a rare eye disease that affects the retina, breaking it down slowly over time and causing blindness. The belief is that his grandfather also had the same disease, though O'Rourke never met him. Part of the reason that O'Rourke, 50, set out on his journey on July 27, was to raise money for the NFB's Bell, Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning, Academy, a summer program of Braille and non-visual skills that helps low-vision children with the skills and confidence to live independent lives. At last tally, a week or so ago, O'Rourke had raised $46,000 and was hoping for more to continue coming in to support an organization that is near and dear to his heart. Because he knows what it's like to try to live without some of those skills, his father never learned Braille and never wanted to use a cane, denial taking hold of him. Tom was injured just before O'Rourke set out on July 27, falling down the stairs, shattering his elbow, breaking his shoulder, and sustaining a concussion. That, plus the ride, may have been the push Tom needed to take the next step. I may even talk him into trying to get certified in it, so he can help other people, O'Rourke said. It's just kind of a neat part of the story. A huge reason behind this is the fact that he never did learn Braille or learn how to use his cane properly. Now he reached out to the CNIB, bracket foundation, close bracket, in Canada, and he's trying to get the starter kit for Braille. That, to me, has been one of the real silver linings of it that he's decided to do that. Tom has told everyone he can find about the ride, about what his son is doing, struggling to get through the story without tearing up, bursting with pride. It's how O'Rourke has felt, too. It's one of the most rewarding things I've done, 
that me and my wife have done, aside from our kids, he said. Along the way from California to Illinois were meet and greets, a Daniel Workday in Springfield, Missouri, that came as a complete surprise, social media check-ins, and a few missteps, including a fall outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that shredded his shorts enough that, my left butt cheek is hanging out, O'Rourke said, laughing. I kind of crashed and burned there. It took almost two days to get the asphalt out of the cuts, but he made it ahead of schedule. O'Rourke crossed the finish line Wednesday, pulling up to a little street sign in downtown Chicago that marks the end of Route 66 around 3 p.m., enjoying a moment alone and taking some pictures. There will be a more formal event on Friday with some vendors and an appearance by the Clarence S. Campbell Bowl, given to the Western Conference champion, which will be available to be touched by low vision and blind people, where they can put their hands on it and experience it that way, O'Rourke said. And this may not be the last time O'Rourke gets on his bike for a cause. He and his wife, April, are already kicking around ideas for the next time. It's just been an amazing journey, O'Rourke said. It was very weird today to get up and not have to get on my bike and get going. Pit Stop Party at Kirkwood Library NHL referee Dan O'Rourke bikes Route 66 for Braille Literacy Fundraising by Julie Brown Patton. Originally published in Webster Kirkwood Times on September 11, 2023, and used with their kind permission. Kirkwood Public Library staffers co-hosted a cycling pit stop party with National Federation of the Blind representatives and guest speaker, National Hockey League referee Dan O'Rourke, on August 31. Roughly 40 pit stop attendees met O'Rourke to hear about his current 45-day bicycle ride from Santa Monica, California, to Chicago, Illinois, along the iconic Route 66 to raise awareness for Braille literacy. There's only about 20% literacy in the blind community. Kids don't have chances to be successful if they can't read. The earlier you start, the easier it is to learn and use Braille, explained O'Rourke, who witnessed his own blind father defeat many obstacles in his path. It floored me that so many people who have blindness in their families don't know about the National Federation of the Blind as a community that can help them thrive. I wanted to give back to the National Federation of the Blind because the group empowers blind people to live the lives they want, he added. Kirkwood was O'Rourke's only stop in the St. Louis region. On August 27, he paused in Springfield, Missouri, the declared birthplace of Route 66. He is scheduled to arrive in Chicago by Friday, September 8. O'Rourke, 51, who's worked as an NHL on-ice official since 1999 and is a self-described CrossFit junkie, will have pedaled 2,700 miles when his ride is complete. He is raising funds specifically for the National Federation of the Blind's Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy, BELL, a summer program of Braille and non-visual skills that helps low-vision children with the abilities and confidence to live independent lives. Those at the Kirkwood Pit Stop Party had an opportunity to have their names typed in Braille, enter to win an official autographed NHL game puck, and meet members of the St. Louis Blues Blind Hockey Club. This was our first ever pit stop party. I love that everyone got to come by the library as an awesome, supportive community, said Mel Lambert, manager of reference and adult services for the Kirkwood Public Library. Also present, and in partnership with the Kirkwood Public Library on an ongoing basis, was Jamie Livingston, adult services librarian for the Wolfner Talking Book and Braille Library in Jefferson City, Missouri. That library loans free materials through an application and certification program to those who are navigating blindness, print disabilities, reading disabilities, and physical or hearing impairments. Jenny Carmack, 
National Federation of the Blind first vice president and president of the Lewis and Clark National Federation of the Blind chapter for St. Louis, is an Afton resident who said she learned Braille as an adult. I use Braille daily for activities such as my microwave and washer. I wish I would have learned it when I was younger due to how important it is to anyone who has limited or no sight, she said. Carmack said the National Federation of the Blind chapter has 25 members who meet from 2 to 5 p.m. on the second Saturday of each month at the St. Louis Society for the Blind and Visually Impaired, 8770 Manchester Road. We also have STEM events and Braille enrichment camps for youths to places such as the Missouri Transportation Museum, she explained, sharing that the state has seven other chapters of the National Federation of the Blind. At the meet-and-greet in Kirkwood, Gary Wonder, National Federation of the Blind President Emeritus of Columbia, Missouri, dispelled myths about Braille. Braille isn't slow, especially if learned early in life and used daily. I believe there's a bit of Braille denial in public schools because teachers don't have the training or materials, he said. Wonder added that Braille isn't that hard to learn. With 187 contractions, we see words with our fingers, several words at a time. Going fast becomes second nature, he said. While some people think Braille is bulky, Wonder said there are optical programs for Word documents and refreshable Braille displays. It's also not true that there aren't enough uses for Braille. Anyone who can type can send each other messages. Braille is well worth the investment, and audio cannot supplant Braille, Wonder said. A handful of athletes representing the St. Louis Blues Blind Hockey Club described how they play with an adapted 5.5-inch metal puck so they can hear it moving. Blind hockey is the same fast-paced sport as ice hockey, except all of the players are legally blind. Players must be classified as eligible in one of the three International Blind Sports Federation classifications. Established in 2017, this St. Louis club is one of 17 U.S. blind hockey teams. O'Rourke, whose grandfather also was blind, left attendees with inspiring sentiments about his 75-year-old father, who he said never utters words about not being able to do something. He said the ride is also meant to honor his father, who was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, a rare eye disease that breaks down the retina over time and causes blindness. My dad just never accepted that he was legally blind. The belief is that my grandfather had the same condition, he said. O'Rourke said his cycling journey along Route 66 has been an unbelievable experience. Everybody tries to thank me, but the pride I feel is that I owe it to you guys, he said. I appreciate everyone who's come out and donated. Every dollar counts, and we can help more kids get started with Braille and get in the right frame of mind with this tool that will help them in their entire lives. For more details about O'Rourke's journey, visit nfb.org route66. Donations can be made at nfb.org monitor links by calling 410-659-9314, extension 2430, or sending a check to National Federation of the Blind, Attention, Outreach, 200 East Wells Street, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Write, Ride for Literacy in the memo. The 2024 Dr. Jacob Bellotten Awards by Everett Bacon. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Everett Bacon. From the editor, Everett Bacon is a member of the National Board of Directors and the affiliate president in Utah. He also chairs the Dr. Jacob Bellotten Award Committee, here is his announcement about the 2024 Bellotten Awards program. The National Federation of the Blind is pleased to announce that applications are now being accepted for the Dr. Jacob Bellotten Awards. These prestigious awards, granted each year as funds permit, seek to honor initiatives, innovations, 
and individuals that are an exemplary positive force in the lives of blind people and advance the ultimate goal of helping them to live the lives they want. Award winners will be publicly recognized during the 2024 Annual Convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Orlando, Florida. Each recipient will receive a cash award determined by the Dr. Jacob Balotin Award Committee and will also be honored with an engraved medallion and plaque. Dr. Jacob W. Balotin, 1888-1924, was a pioneering blind physician, the first in history who achieved that goal despite the tremendous challenges faced by blind people in his time. Not only did he realize his own dream, he went on to support and inspire many others in making their own dreams a reality. The awards which bear his name are supported in part by the Alfred and Rosalind Perlman Trust, left as a bequest by Dr. Balotin's late nephew and niece to the Santa Barbara Foundation and the National Federation of the Blind to present the annual cash awards. As chronicled in his biography, The Blind Doctor by Rosalind Perlman, Dr. Balotin fought ignorance and prejudice to gain entrance to medical school and the medical profession. He became one of the most respected physicians in Chicago during his career, which spanned the period from 1912 until his death in 1924. He was particularly known for his expertise in diseases of the heart and lungs. During his successful career, Dr. Balotin used his many public speaking engagements to advocate for employment of the blind and the full integration of the blind into society. Interested in young people in general and blind youth in particular, Dr. Balotin established the first Boy Scout troop consisting entirely of blind boys and served as its leader. Jacob Balotin's wife, Helen, had a sister whose husband died suddenly, leaving her to raise a son, Alfred Perlman. The Perlmans moved in with the Balotins when Alfred was 11, and for four years, until Jacob Balotin's untimely death at age 36, Uncle Jake became Alfred's surrogate father. Alfred later married Rosalind, and the couple worked on a book about Dr. Balotin's life. After Alfred's death in 2001, Rosalind dedicated the rest of her life to completing and publishing the book, The Blind Doctor, The Jacob Balotin Story, published by Bluepoint Books. Link available at nfb.org monitor links. With standard ink print and large type editions available, and also in digital audio format from the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled, NLS, program. Past award winners have 1. Broken down barriers facing blind people in innovative ways. 2. Changed negative perceptions of blindness and blind people. 3. Pushed past existing boundaries to inspire blind people to achieve new heights. Award Description In 2024, the National Federation of the Blind will again recognize individuals and organizations that have distinguished themselves in accordance with the criteria established to receive a Dr. Jacob Balotin Award. The committee will determine both the number of awards and the value of each cash award presented. The Federation determines the total amount to be distributed each year based on income received from the trust supporting the award program. The award categories for each year are blind individuals, sighted individuals, and organizations, corporations, or other entities. Individuals may apply on their own behalf or may submit a third-party nomination, or the committee may also consider other individual or organizational candidates. Who should apply? Individuals. Only individuals over 18 years of age may be considered for a Dr. Jacob Balotin Award. Applicants must demonstrate that they have shown substantial initiative and leadership in improving the lives of the blind. Examples of such initiative include, but are not limited to, developing products, technologies, or techniques that increase the independence of the blind, directing quality programs or agencies for the blind, or mentoring other blind people. 
All individual applicants or third-party applicants nominating other individuals must demonstrate that the work to be recognized has been conducted within the 12 months preceding the application and or that the work is continuing. Applications by or on behalf of individuals must include at least one letter of recommendation from a person familiar with or directly affected by the work to be recognized. Organizations Organizations may apply for a Dr. Jacob Balotin Award in order to further programs, services, technology, or techniques of unique and outstanding merit that have assisted and will continue to assist the blind. Applications from third parties nominating an organization will also be considered. The organization category includes for-profit or non-profit corporations or organizations or other entities, such as a specific division within an organization. Organizations or third-party applicants must demonstrate that the programs or services to be recognized include substantial participation by blind people as developers, mentors, administrators, or executives, and not merely as clients, consumers, or beneficiaries. For example, an organization operating a program for blind youth might demonstrate that a substantial number of the counselors, teachers, or mentors involved in the program are blind. The organization or third-party applicant must demonstrate that it has substantially aided blind people within the 12 months prior to application and that an award would support efforts to build on previous successes. The application must also include at least one testimonial from a blind person who has benefited substantially from the programs or services. To qualify for an award, both individual and organizations must provide programs, services, or benefits to blind people in the United States of America. Procedures. More information, including an online application, can be found on the National Federation of the Blind website at https colon slash slash nfb.org slash bolotin, B-O-L-O-T-I-N. Online submissions of nominations, letters of support, and other relevant materials is strongly encouraged, but applications sent by mail and postmarked by the deadline will also be accepted. The 2024 deadline for application submission is April 15, and recipients chosen by the committee will be individually notified of their selection no later than May 15. Receipt of all complete applications will be acknowledged, but only those applicants chosen to receive an award will be notified of their selection. All decisions of the Dr. Jacob Balotin Award Committee are final. The awards will be presented in July during the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind. Individuals selected to receive an award must appear in person, not send a representative. Organizations may send an individual representative, preferably their chief executive officer. Recipient candidates must confirm that they will appear in person to accept the award at the National Federation of the Blind Annual Convention. Failure to confirm attendance for the award presentation by June 1 will result in forfeiture of the award. Ineligible Persons those employed full-time by the National Federation of the Blind may not apply for a Dr. Jacob Balotin Award for work performed within the scope of their employment. Students may not apply for both a Dr. Jacob Balotin Award and a National Federation of the Blind Scholarship in the same year. It Matters What We Do, Not Who We Are by Jarrett J. Vermey A photo appears on the page, the caption, Jarrett J. Vermey smiles as he examines a large shell. From the editor, Jarrett J. Vermey is a distinguished professor emeritus at UC Davis. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2021 and to the National Academy of Sciences in 2022. He has published seven books and remains scientifically active. I understand the upcoming book he refers to in his article now means he has published eight of them, 
Luckily for us, he still finds time to be both a reader and contributor. Here is what he writes. Modern society seems obsessed with identity, race, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and disability. They all take center stage in defining us as individuals. At every turn we are asked to identify ourselves according to society's currently fashionable categories, regardless of whether those categories can be unambiguously circumscribed. Thousands of sociological studies, government mandates, and policies at every level of society are founded on heterogeneous, ill-defined, and often highly fluid categories. Worse, these categories reinforce existing prejudices and biases. Those of us who are blind know all of this very well, yet even we often fall prey to this preoccupation with identity. In his 1963 speech, Blindness, Handicap or Characteristic, reprinted in the Braille Monitor, Volume 66, Number 6, June 2023, Kenneth Jernigan correctly asserted that blindness is a characteristic, one of many traits that affect a person's life. With great clarity, he argued that blindness can be mitigated so that it need not and should not be considered a sign of inability or inferiority. Indeed, a core mission of the National Federation of the Blind is to ensure that blind individuals have the tools as well as the positive attitudes to overcome the physical and social disadvantages that come with blindness. This necessary work continues, as it should. But I would go a step further. Our characteristics, including blindness, do influence what we do and how others perceive us, but they do not define us. What matters, it seems to me, is what we do, not who we are. Society's preoccupation with identity is destructive. It reinforces stereotypes and prematurely determines the potential, or lack of potential, for individual accomplishments and diminishes the fairness of how the actions and contributions of individuals are judged. My perspective on this issue derives not from social activism or advocacy, but from my lifelong study of the economic history of the world of living things, including our own species. Life forms today and in the past have managed to persevere and in the long run to improve in a world full of changing challenges and opportunities. In my forthcoming book, The Evolution of Power, A New Understanding of the History of Life, Princeton University Press, 2023, I explore the premise that, like humans, all other forms of life have the ability to change and adapt to their surroundings to the extent that their power, the rate at which energy and material resources are acquired and deployed, allows. Although their station in the web of life is strongly affected by this power, it is the actions of living things that matter. By itself, power or energy, like money, means nothing. They become useful only when they are deployed to do something. In other words, characteristics in the abstract tell us nothing about what we do. A shift in emphasis away from identity toward accomplishment would represent a healthy and refreshing reorientation in how we and others see ourselves. What can we do with the appropriate physical and educational tools? Isn't it better to be evaluated on what we have done or are doing than to be classified according to preconceived, often socially loaded, categories based on characteristics in isolation? Our accomplishments and actions are far more diverse than our socially prescribed characteristics, and it is this diversity of doing that describes the richness of the human enterprise. Announcing the NFB 2024 Scholarship Program by Kate Mendez. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Kate Mendez. From the editor, many volunteer jobs in the NFB are as taxing and as demanding of time as full-time employment. 
One of them is chairing our scholarship committee, and Kate does a wonderful job of remaining calm, cool, and compassionate in the performance of her duties. Here is her announcement about the 2024 scholarship program with the promise of a longer article to come early next year. The National Federation of the Blind is pleased to announce our 2024 scholarship program. We offer $38,000 scholarships to blind students who will be at least 18 years of age by July 1, 2024. Students may apply if they reside in the 50 states, the District of Columbia, or Puerto Rico, and will be enrolled in a full-time, accredited post-secondary degree program during the 2023-2024 school year. All scholarships will be awarded at our 2024 National Convention, which will take place in Orlando, Florida, from July 3 to 8, 2024. The application period begins December 1, 2023, and closes at midnight Eastern Standard Time on March 31, 2024. Go to www.nfb.org/scholarships to apply during the four-month open period. Read the rules and the submission checklist. Complete the official 2024 scholarship application form online or in print. Supply all required documents and request and complete an interview with an NFB affiliate president. Remember, the only way to win is to apply. My Experiences as a Deafblind Participant in our 2023 National Convention by Maurice Mines. There is a photo on the page, the caption, Maurice Mines. From the editor, most of us who attend convention know that it takes planning, perseverance, and dealing with the unexpected. Maurice shows us that this is a daily challenge that is a bit more difficult when one must coordinate with several others and some flawed technology to get the information most of us get so easily. Here is a good part of his convention week in Houston at our 2023 National Convention. These are my 2023 National Convention experiences. For the first time, I found myself having to cope with going to convention with hearing aids that weren't up to the task. Thank goodness for tactile sign language interpreters. This year's convention would have been much more difficult to attend and participate in without them. Before things started, I, of course, had to deal with convention headquarters hotel staff. A brief comment, they did a great job considering the circumstances. When it became apparent that I couldn't hear, one of the hotel staff members took it upon themselves to text me questions that I was able to answer. We had a texting conversation about the things that any other guest had after checking in. Getting my caffeine the next morning there was the experience of trying to find the lobby Starbucks. This was a particular challenge because of how difficult it is to hear anything in the lobby. It was an extreme challenge, but fortunately I found two guests who were quite willing to assist. Apparently one of them knew some sign language, so that person was able to ask me what I wanted from Starbucks. After getting what I needed, I asked for some minor assistance to be pointed toward the elevators. They insisted upon accompanying me to my room, of course, I knew exactly where my room was located, so this wasn't a big issue. My roommate for convention had arrived, and it was time to figure out what we were going to have for dinner. Luckily, I found a local pizza company. In ordering, using my hearing aid seemed to go well. We did get exactly what we ordered, but of course there's the challenge of getting to the lobby. By this time, the hotel staff figured out that I really can't hear. Luckily, I was able to get some assistance to find the pizza delivery driver. The First Day of Convention the first major hurdle was meeting up with the interpreters who were going to be helping me make sense of convention activities. Somehow our wires got crossed. I wound up on the first floor while they were waiting on the third floor. After some texting, it all got worked out. Attending meetings for the most part worked, more or less. 
what to do for lunch on the first day. We decided that it was probably a good idea for me to visit the hotel restaurant, but I soon discovered it served absolutely huge tacos. I asked my interpreter why such large tacos, and the first reply I hear was one I'd get for the rest of the week. You are in Texas, meaning everything is much larger in Texas. The afternoon seemed to go much smoother. I went to the multiple disabilities meeting and was still trying to get used to being signed to pretty much full-time. Needless to say, I had to remember my college sign language classes. I felt like I was in the world's longest final exam. I really had to figure out whether I was ready to spend a week sinking as I asked, Can you please repeat that again? Or was I going to swim? So I stopped and tried to remember what I did when many moons ago attending an NFB center. Then, of course, there was my time at Helen Keller National Center for Deaf and Blind Youth and Adults. My conclusion was that I needed to problem-solve in this situation. I decided that trying to swim made the most sense. Like any language, if you don't use it, you tend to lose it. So I eventually began to pick out words and put them together in context. This eventually allowed me to figure out what was going on over the course of convention, though not always as rapidly as I wanted. An unexpected crisis turns into a victory. Evening came and one issue suddenly made itself quite clear. I suddenly realized that I did not purchase a new belt before convention. It was time to find a belt before mine gave up. Fortunately, the gift shop in the Hilton just so happened to have a suitable belt. Managing the workload for my interpreters In working with these interpreters, I had to figure out what interpreting they should be doing and when they could take a needed break. We eventually worked this out. In fact, when I had a brief conversation in the presidential suite with Pam Allen about needing to schedule a meeting with President Riccobono, she asked me something like, why don't we just call you and leave you a voicemail? Unfortunately, due to the fact that I am deaf-blind, anyone who wishes to leave me a voicemail might want to think twice about attempting this. Long story short, I can't hear traditional voicemail at all. This is true even with hearing aids. My suggestion was that I be sent a text message, and this accommodation worked beautifully. When we met, my interpreters were very impressed with our national president. Together, we had a good meeting. Day 2. If this were a gymnastics competition, the degree of difficulty would have increased significantly. The first stop was to pick up my convention materials. My interpreters were surprised that I picked a Braille agenda, meaning hard copy Braille. They were also impressed that the person handing it to me thanked me for reading Braille. I then explained to my interpreters that, sad though it is, too few blind people, let alone deaf-blind people, actually read Braille. Then it was off to the exhibit hall, where the noise level was off the charts. I don't think it would have made a difference in terms of which pair of hearing aids I wore. I brought two pairs, one that works great for conversations when there's no background noise at all, and one more that works better to filter out background noise. The second pair is slightly better, but the amount of noise in the exhibit hall made either pair useless. Again, it was time to sink or swim. The strategy I employed this time was to work out with my interpreters which tables I would visit and which I would bypass. This strategy seemed to work well. My first stop was to the table that represented the state that I grew up in, Washington State. I think the person who sold me the two bags of chocolate-covered espresso beans might have been a bit taken aback to have an interpreter talking to them. But, given the noise level, it was the only way to complete the purchase. The next place I went was the humanware table. Trying to figure out the cost of a braille embosser I was checking out was a little bit stressful. Remember that my understanding of ASL is a challenge because I haven't used it much. I certainly felt like I was being tested. I did eventually figure out the price. 
The embosser certainly made me think about the cost of assistive technology. The National Resolutions Committee meeting. The next task for our little group was figuring out how to handle the Resolutions Committee meeting. One of the interpreters said, Let's see if you can hear the chair. If you can, we won't step in. But if you really can't, we'll just stay in here and start signing as needed. Long story short, I was able to understand the chair's questions, but only because of the interpreters. I'm happy to report that the resolution I was the proponent for received a do-pass recommendation. It was eventually passed by the entire convention later in the week. The morning of the third day at National Convention. It was time to go to the National Board of Directors meeting. The day before, the interpreters began to comment on just how many people they were seeing at meetings. I mentioned to them that the week would definitely grow in terms of the number of people attending meetings. I then explained how National Board of Directors meetings go so that they could get an idea of what I think might be important and what detail I thought might be okay to leave out. The first thing that the interpreters asked me was during the presentation from New Mexico. They asked me whether people generally leave that kind of money to the organization. I said yes, and that some years the presentations involved larger amounts of money than others. The lunch surprise. We decided that it might be a good idea to grab something outside the hotel. Again, I found myself asking my interpreters why the servings were so large once my lunch order arrived. I told them that there was no way I could eat all of this in one sitting. Their answer once again was that, You are in Texas. The challenge was how to put all that food away so that I could have it for dinner. This involved dealing with elevators that during convention sometimes work and more often don't. Let's just say my interpreters and I plotted how we would make good use of the stairs during the course of convention week. Off to the National Federation of the Blind Deafblind Division Reorganization Meeting. Remember when I mentioned earlier that I had to sink or swim? Again, I was being put to the test. I had to concentrate on what was going on at the meeting and put what was being signed into context. This also involved keeping track of the pro-tactile cues being offered by the interpreters. The first part of the meeting going through the Constitution went well, but only because I read it through several times to the meeting so everyone would know exactly what they would be approving. Once the draft Constitution underwent a few changes, it was approved. I worked so hard at figuring out what was being said and not being said that I almost missed the fact that I had been elected president of the division. So for the rest of the meeting, I did my best to read the sign language and make certain that I understood when other interpreters walked by and congratulated me. One minute you are feeling the signs from the person you're working with, and the next minute there's a different hand there to greet and sign. Attending the Black Blind Leaders Meeting This meeting turned out to be very interesting and inspiring, not only because of what was said, but how it was said. Let's just say that this meeting was one of the highlights of my convention experiences this year. Some definitions. I think at this point I should explain some differences, such as the difference between American Sign Language, which is visual in nature, and Tactile Sign, which is, of course, done by touch. The next difference I want to explain is the difference between what the interpreters do and how they do it to assist deafblind persons at convention and other large NFB gatherings. I also want to address what they don't do. Interpreters either repeat the proceedings through a personalized communication system, such as a wireless microphone, or sign the proceedings, which was the case for me this year. I will say that I did use a personal communication system at times. A separate task from interpreting is performed by a special services support person. This person often assists with communication styles, such as talking to the hotel front desk, ordering food, interacting with hotel staff that don't work at the front desk, 
or stopping off to just say hi to another state affiliate that you haven't seen in three years. I mention the difference between interpreters and service providers because there is the need for us as a movement to discuss how and in what manner we hire and use special service support providers both at conventions and other Federation gatherings. The first day of general session. My interpreters, again, were shocked with the amount of people. It really is true when we talk about ours being the largest annual gathering of the disabled held anywhere in the country. People who assist us at our conventions become overwhelmed, just like first-time conventioneers do. Finding my delegation. Now it's time to figure out where the California affiliate is sitting in what is described to me as an absolutely huge room. While weaving in and out of the state delegations, my interpreters introduced me to someone who, of course, I knew to be one of the California affiliate's parent division board members. The opening ceremonies began. One interpreter signed, Older Person. I supplied the name of who I thought it was. Then they signed, Oh, the person who spoke yesterday. Again, I supplied the name of our post-affiliate president. The best description of the week of how things were proceeding was when the interpreters signed, person from your delegation dancing in the aisles. I later told them that conventions are like that. You never know when the spirit is going to move you. I'm leaving out the person's name, but she knows who she is. In making it through the roll call of states, I decided that the name of the state, the state president, and the delegate was enough. In a few cases, the state president was not the delegate, so this information was important to me. The afternoon session went well. The interpreters traded off during the presidential report, they commented it was long but very detailed. I told them our presidential reports are like that. After the session, I had a discussion with an old friend from Colorado. I ordered dinner to go because I had to get to the California caucus. In our conversation, my friend was astonished at how much hearing I'd lost. We both were able to communicate well because my interpreter was standing next to me to make sure that communications occurred appropriately. The friend and I reminisced about the friends who were most assuredly being missed but will never be forgotten. The next day began with our financial report. Thank goodness there's a Starbucks in the headquarters hotel. Receiving lots and lots of signed numbers can certainly put one to sleep just as if one could hear them. Needless to say, sitting through a signed financial report, one needs lots of coffee. For elections, we decided that it was best to follow the same pattern that had been established the previous day by signing the state and candidate's name. Sometimes my interpreters got the names correctly, and at other times I had to supply the name and have them confirm that I was right. It is worth saying that, again, my interpreters were surprised and impressed with how smoothly things went during the elections. I had to have a chat with my chapter president, but because of the noise, hearing each other was more than a challenge. It was impossible. For this reason, we used my interpreter. My chapter president was impressed because I don't think she'd ever seen me work with interpreters before. By this point, people were thinking I was a pro at this. Yes and no. It really does depend on the situation. In the afternoon, of course, it was time to sit through approving the resolutions that had been sent to the floor of the convention by the Resolutions Committee. A combination of sign and pro-tactile sign was used to make certain I understood the progress of each resolution. The interpreters didn't sign the entire resolution because they'd already done that during the Resolutions Committee. Besides that, I had a pretty good idea of what was being presented. I told them it was probably okay to leave minor details out unless they were critical to what was being presented. Luckily, the resolution I sponsored passed. The final day. At this time, our little group was working smoothly. The interpreters were doing well with finding and or speaking the proceedings. 
That is, until our international guest, Jonathan Mosen, delivered his speech. The interpreters were astounded by the way in which mean technology companies are discriminating. I said, yes, you haven't seen me interact much with technology. What you don't understand is that, when one is at home, it means pretty much making use of the technology to do whatever you need to do. The examples offered by Mr. Mosen highlighted these frustrations. The presentation that garnered most comments for the week was the one regarding service animals. My interpreters were astounded. But the most exciting information signed to me for the week was the meeting where someone said, Presenter vanished. That pretty much told me that the person presented and ran. I explained to the interpreters that this also sometimes happens at convention. Wrapping it up. The final event was the 2023 banquet. One of the interpreters looked a little strange showing up to a black tie event in tennis shoes. I signed the word unbelievable, and the interpreter showed me that, yes, she was indeed wearing tennis shoes. Getting through the banquet and getting all the names right took teamwork, with my reading them and helping the interpreters get them right. The hardest part came when it got to the Tenbrook Award. My interpreter signed that the winner was Adele Movie. I explained to them that I knew who the person was and repeated the name. This highlighted something that occurred all week but was unavoidable, figuring out proper names. At times, the agenda helped, but at times it was just their best guess. Fortunately, I had been coming to conventions off and on for quite some time and could figure it out. At the conclusion of the convention, one of my interpreters named Benedict expressed surprise at how well things had gone and said it was quite a pleasure working with me all week. He described what he called his transformation from wondering how we could begin to do all of these things and then figuring out that indeed we already had it figured out. I told him that it had been a great week and that now I must really think about the trip home. I also found myself thinking about the future in Orlando next year and coming up with a way to fund the trip and perhaps the special service provider I will need. I invite any comments and or suggestions anyone might wish to make after reading this article. You can find my contact information under the Divisions page on our national website. We have work to do. Reflections on Changing the Blind Employment Paradigm by Mary Fernandez A photo appears on the page, the caption, Mary Fernandez. From the editor, Family, education, and the faith and hard work of my Federation family are all at the root of things I value in my life. No one has ever summed up how I feel better than Mary Fernandez. Enjoy her humor, charisma, enthusiasm, and wisdom. Good afternoon, Federal Federationists. I want to say thank you. Thank you for this great honor. I grew up in this organization, and this is legit the most high-pressure speech I've ever delivered. <laughs> um, at Cisco, I've been working for the last year in developing an accessibility strategy as we look into leaning into a purpose of powering an inclusive future for all. And that includes disabled people. And so I am very excited today that uh, that strategy work is, is mostly complete and I'm really looking forward uh, to perhaps seeing some of our executives join us in the NFB next year to tell us about how we'll continue to enable collaboration for all, including the blind. All right, I have a lot, I have a long speech. <laughs> When I was a little girl, my mom used to tell me to eat your books. 
This was her way of telling me that literacy and education would be the key to my future. Yesterday's agenda featured brilliant women like Susan Masarui and Eve Hill and Carla Gilbride, and every one of them said we were stubborn children. And so today I want to say to you, hi, it's me. I'm the stubborn one, it's me. <laughs> and, so, and so as a stubborn child, I like to say no. I will not read. <laughs> Thankfully, my mother is a literal force of nature. So one day after throwing a tantrum, my mother threw me in my bedroom with a braille book and said, child, you will read. And I threw a tantrum, I screamed, I cried, I threw myself on the floor, but there was nothing but silence from the outside. Finally, in an act of absolute and utter seven-year-old desperation, I slowly and tentatively ran my, title, my, my fingers over the title, Freckle Juice by Judy Bloom. And then I did the unthinkable. I painstakingly and ever so slowly opened to the first page. And then I realized there was a bunch of copyright stuff on the first page, and I was like, what the heck? Like, when are they going to get to it? Because, like, intellectual property is not a real thing for a seven-year-old. <laughs> and finally, it began. Line up, boys and girls, Miss Kelly said. Time to go home now. I was hooked. I was hooked on books. I was hooked in literacy. And most of all, I was hooked on Braille. This stubborn child learned and continues to learn that my mommy is always right, so thank you, mommy. <laughs> and in that moment, she couldn't have been more right. Literacy was my key to education, and my educational career taught me that stories move me, that curiosity drives me, but that human connection feeds me. She knew the importance of Braille literacy for her blind child. And she would always say that if you can read, you can do anything. Hence, hence reading Braille made it possible for me to gain that well-rounded education. And for me, education was always the puzzle piece, was the first puzzle piece for that thing that is so hard for disabled folks, which is finding and keeping a job. I acknowledge that to say that education leads directly for a job to a job is, and, and most importantly, a fulfilling career is an oversimplification. I actually would argue that the skills necessary for being successful in the job market really start at home. And those skills are supposed to be reinforced in the school system. And then they're supposed to be um, at a, cultivated and nurtured as we become adults and are able to make more substantive decisions around our careers. But when you introduce blindness to the equation, the oppressive force of ableism tends to break those natural links. Today I want to answer three questions around unemployment. One, why is the unemployment gap still so significant? 
what could I do as an individual to be more successful in the job market? And what can employees do to more meaningfully move the needle? So let's look at the statistics. According to the U.S. Bureau of Statistics in 2022, the unemployment rate of disabled people was over 9% versus 3.4% and dropping for non-disabled people. This means that disabled people are three times uh, unemployed versus non-disabled people. The statistics go on and on and you can break them any way you want. But the bottom line is that disabled people are disproportionately unemployed and underemployed. And this is particularly true when you have other marginalized identity. It is one thing to hear these numbers. They almost don't connect with us, but it's another thing to live it. When I graduated as a senior from Emory University, I had a 3.8 GPA. I had done, thank you. That was a long time ago. <laughs> and I remember the first semester of my senior year, I applied to an average of five jobs a day. And that sinking feeling when every single letter came back saying, thanks, but no thanks. Dear sir or madam, thanks, but no thanks. I will also never forget that after five years of work experience as a paralegal at Brown, Goldstein and Levy, shout out to Brown, Goldstein and Levy, and, and helping stand up the EDGE program in New Jersey, shout out to New Jersey. <laughs> um, I was back on the job market and as I saw something more permanent, I was happy to do something part-time. And so I applied to be a sixth grade English tutor, which was a remote position. And y'all, I am happy to say that I was as smart as a sixth grader because I passed the test, I <laughs> aced the application, and I got a call saying, hey, you got the job. So I was like, great, awesome, thank you. So two things, one, I'd love to test out the accessibility of the collaborative software you use. And two, I'd love to get those materials in uh, electronic format so I can be successful. And there was a long silence. And 10 minutes later, I got a call back saying that the position was mysteriously no longer available. To see a sixth grade part-time English tutor. Most of us in this room had to have that struggle to, with ourselves, whether or not to disclose our disability after getting a job offer, while knowing that the choice offers no assurance of employment at the end of the process. Now, more than any other time in history, we have unparalleled access to technology. We have laws that are supposed to protect us. And we have commitments from companies around diversity, equity, and inclusion and statements that say we really do want you here. And yet, digital tools we need to do our jobs every single day remain inaccessible. Discrimination cases takes years to resolve, and companies with bold DEI move, uh, commitment statements published in their career pages seem to miss and forget that accommodations and accessibility are part of inclusion and equity. At the heart of all of this, there's only one answer, and that is oppression. 
at the, sorry, my Braille display is interesting. <laughs> uh, there are four uh, part types and, and parts to oppression. They're ideological, institutional, interpersonal, internalized. And these four forms of oppression work together to shape a narrative that truly impact every aspect of our life. Uh, I don't have the time to go into that today, but President Riccomono, a whole presentation on oppression would be a great addition to next year's agenda. Uh, so if you're interested, give me a call. I have suggestions. One important aspect of oppression I do want to share is internalized oppression or ableism. This is the most uncomfortable form to oppression to acknowledge because it really makes us listen to that voice that says, you are not enough. If you ask for accommodation, you're not as good an employee. If you ask for help as a blind person, you're not a good enough person. And all of these voices really feed on each other and on the other forms of oppression because they make us in some form doubt our worth. And we know that as an organization, we reject this. And one of the most effective ways of countering internalized oppression is through community and collective action. It is the counter narrative we provide for each other of strength, a narrative of resilience, and that control of our future. It is training, advocacy, and the refusal to settle for second-class citizenship that is core to our organization. In the face of oppression, one can, what can one individual do to break down those barriers? How can we carry on when systems are supposed to support us but yet are broken? The good news is that the NFB has, <clears throat> has always been a group made up of former stubborn children and has been dismantling oppression for over 80 years. And every one of us in this room has benefited from that. When there were no useful orientation and mobility training, we invented it. And then we refined it. And then we taught it to each other. If they will not teach our children well, we, Braille, we will teach them ourselves. And at the same time, and at the same time, we will fight until they get that equal access in school. And as an individual, I found the most value in community. The community I have found here has been one of the most important and integral parts of my success. You see, when I arrived to the United States from Colombia, I was almost eight years old. I was two when my mom aged, uh, my, when my mom left Colombia at the age of 26, she didn't know English, she didn't know where she was gonna go, and yet she took a plane to JFK and landed in New York. After working here for a year, she got a call that I was diagnosed with a glaucoma, and it would simply be a matter of time until I was fully blind. My mother used the pain of her daughter during this pivotal moment and turned it into fuel to remain laser focused on bringing me and my brother to the US. She knew then that it would be the only chance at a fulfilling life. 
So I came here an awkward and stubborn child. I had no social skills, had never attended school, and I don't think I even really understood what blindness was. All I knew is that when my O&M instructor put a short and stubby stick in my hand and told me I had to carry it around, I promptly dropped it on the floor. <laughs> Though the uphill battle to get me to read was fairly quickly won, the battle to have me use a cane proved a lot harder. You see, I have deeply internalized beliefs about blindness and disability, and a cane was a visible sign of my difference. Even when I didn't know, oh, sorry. And though by the time I was in high school, I used it every day, I still felt like an outcast. No matter what I did, I was other, either invisible to others or felt like the most conspicuous person in the room. It wasn't until I was 14 that my feelings about myself began to shift, and that's because I became part of the LEAD program in New Jersey for blind and low vision students and met the likes of Sherlock Washington and one of the mentors that had the most impact in my life, Joe Ruffalo. <laughs> Joe gave me my first real lesson in advocacy. We were at the National Center, and I really wanted to do this Rocket On program I had heard about, and he's like, there's Mr. Riccobono. He's the man in charge. Go talk to him. And so I did, and he did, and now the rest is history. Here I am. <laughs> finding, <laughs> finding community equates to finding belonging. We know that blind people are not a monolith. But at the same time, we have a shared lived experience that we all understand. And we understand the false narratives around blindness. With the NFB, I found my little tribe. And that tribe has carried me through the hardest parts of my life. So all of us in this employment journey, listen, it's hard. It's brutal. It's awful. It's moralizing. But it is a lot harder when you have to do it alone. It is harder when we have no one to turn to to tell them how uncomfortable it was when the interview turned from our qualifications to a disability training. I encourage all of you to find and stay in this community. And not everybody in this room is your cup of tea, and that's okay. But some of us are. And so find us and stay with us. Participating in the Federation sparked a passion and my gift for advocacy. As a little girl, y'all, I was always looking for the injustice to write. And uh, when I came to the NFB and understood why I felt like an outcast and that Braille was uh, denied to children that me and that babies were taken away from their parents because their parents were blind, I said, this is it. This is what I have to fight for every day. The NFB has also sharpened my leadership skills. I delivered my first speech at the NFB NJ convention when I was 14. <laughs> I, <laughs> I led affiliate student divisions, and those leadership skills quickly transferred 
outside the NFB, I became involved in after-school programs and clubs and really dove headlong into understanding what leadership meant. And I learned that leadership does not spring from positional power, but rather from the actions we take to influence change. And that, and that is something each and every one of us can do no matter where we are and where we sit. As I have gotten older, I identified the values that carry me everywhere, it's values that were instilled by my mother, nurtured by the Federation, and implemented by me. I value integrity, honesty, hard work, collaboration, and authenticity. I conduct myself with courage, including the courage to speak truth to power, which is something I learned in this organization. I say all this to bring several things to the forefront. First, instilling confidence, reliability, and resilience starts at home. Letting our children take risks, letting them know that yes, they are wonderful and, and, and have gifts, not because they're blind, because they have very specific uh, gifts and talents. All of these contribute to shaping future employees and future leaders. Second, that in the face of oppression, we as a collective are the best at developing each other's gifts and talents. We provide, we, wait a second. <laughs> um, gifts and talents, okay, I got it. We provide a space where we support each other but also constantly challenge each other to grow. And when the world won't provide, we fill in the opportunity gaps to ensure that our youth have a full and well-rounded set of life experiences. Are we perfect? No. And because we, and because we, being disabled does not mean we do not hold ableist, ableist beliefs. We must always work to dismantle them. Even as we push each other, we must find ways to uplift each other and not fall into the, into the trap of oppressing each other. We know, we know that there isn't one right way to do blindness, and we must provide space for that. We know that blindness is often accompanied by other disabilities, and we must cultivate spaces where those of us with multiple disabilities can thrive. As I, think, <laughs> as I think about employment and the collective movement, I keep coming back to the evolution of our own organizations. Today we're having conversations about our identities taken together and how they form an intersection inseparable from how we experience the world. When I started in the NFB, I embraced this idea that blindness was just a characteristic like my hair. And y'all have gorgeous curly hair. But as I've grown into my work and dived into my identities, I actually think that disability is far more than that. My disability is actually part of my identity. You see, if I had the same hair in 2020 vision, I probably would have had equitable access to my educational instructional materials in graduate school. However, because of my disability, I did not. And so, 
And this is also impacted by my other identities, such as my gender, my skin color, my language. I no longer believe that asking for equal access is actually enough. Rather, in my work, I advocate for equitable access. That is to provide... I'm glad you like that. <laughs> that is to provide the tools and resources that individuals need to be successful. Equity is pro equality is providing stairs for everyone. Equity is providing stairs, elevator, escalators, and ramps in equally convenient places so that people can choose their path. And because equity is so much more complex, that means that there isn't a simple solution. In his speech, The Nature of Independence, Dr. Jernigan wrote, unless you make advances, um, I'm, I'm getting there, because I want to do it justice. <laughs> unless you make advances over what we have done, you will, in a very real sense, fail to keep the faith with those who have gone before you and those who follow. And I challenge us all to stay on this path of seeking not just equality, but equity. Because if freedom is the right to choose, then equity is the path to that freedom. Yeah. Employers, <laughs> thank you. Employers, I, I have some words for you. Any employers in the room? <laughs> Woo, okay. And there are three best practices I want to leave you with. First, design with us, not for us. Oftentimes, uh, employers ask me, oh my God, so what can disabled people do? And how do I hire them? And where are they? <laughs> and then programs are launched with names that include words like differently abled and special talents and uniquely gifted. Um, I dare say that everybody in this room is differently abled, but not everybody in this room is blind. These are seldom designed with disabled people in mind, but rather for disabled people. And here's the good news. You are here with us. So you're already in the room where it happens. And so, <laughs> and so engage with us to understand the value that we bring. And yes, it is going to be messy and difficult. But when we work with each other, we create talent-based strategies, which truly, up, which truly open up opportunity. Second, let's stop performative hiring. A lot of times, I, uh, I attended a conference last year where most of the Fortune 100 turns up, and they had this competition of who was going to hire the most disabled people. And so I went to the job fair. I'm like, let me see what's up. And I went to the, the company that was leading in numbers. And I told them about my experience, like, oh, well, we don't really have anything for you. We're only looking for entry-level internships. So being a curious doll, I walked around and I said, hey, do you have anything for me? And they were like, nope. Friends, it is not enough to hire at entry level. First, 
When you do recruit and hire disabled talent at entry level, ask yourselves, what am I doing to develop this talent into true leaders? How am I removing the barriers? And also, disabled talent is far from just being entry level talent. We need to really shift the ways we think about what executive leadership looks like because executive leadership is blind, is deaf, is disabled, is autistic, is dyslexic. Do not put it on us to be good enough to break your glass ceiling. It is your job to take off your own roof. If you do these two things, design with us, and critically assess and revamp your recruitment strategies, then you start slowly to reach for the higher fruit that will stretch, that stretch will get you to brush the tips of the branches of belonging. Belonging is a sense that each of us is fundamentally valued and our uniqueness is treasured. And I will tell you right now, there is only one week in the year I feel like I truly belong, and it is in this convention. To all of us in this room, my ask is to not only give back, but to always pay it forward. Mentoring, advocating, connecting, these are all ways of paying it forward. So I'll leave you with this question. What will you do to pay it forward? In that spirit, I want to pay it forward today for the stubborn child who refused to accept society's narrative about her blindness, for every person in this room who is just finding their community, and for every parent who fights every day for their child's future without limits. I'm going to say this in Spanish first, and then I will translate it. En honor de la mujer que tuvo el más impacto en mi vida, yo voy a donar $3,300 a la Federación Nacional de los Ciegos porque yo sé que no hay ninguna otra organización que invierte en la educación de los jóvenes ciegos como la Federación. I love that half the room understood that. <laughs> In honor of the woman who raised me to be courageous, fearless, authentic, and a strong advocate, I am now pledging 330 and 300, <laughs> wait a second. Let me not say the wrong number now. $3,300 to the NFB in honor of Clara Roman, my mother. That's $100, uh, that's $100 from every year because I'm not an actual baller. So, you know, this, this is what we can do right now. <laughs> I trust no other organization will put this to better youth, to educating our youth, to pushing the boundaries of what we've, what we've been told is possible. Education has been the touchstone of my success. My mother, the unwavering support, and the NFB, the community that has helped me, 
and on whose shoulders I stand. We need your help. Very soon after I went blind, I went to my first convention of the National Federation of the Blind. Though, as a six-year-old, I was not scared about my future as a blind person. Learning about the NFB and going to conventions showed me tons of independent blind people who I could look up to, real-life superheroes that I could aspire to be like. Abigail Blind children, students, and adults are making powerful strides in education and leadership every day across the United States, but we need to continue helping kids like Abigail. For more than 80 years, the National Federation of the Blind has worked to transform the dreams of hundreds of thousands of blind people into reality. With support from individuals like you, we can continue to provide powerful programs and critical resources now and for decades to come. We hope you will plan to be a part of our enduring movement by including the National Federation of the Blind in your charitable giving and in your estate planning. It is easier than you think. With your help, the NFB will continue to give blind children the gift of literacy through Braille, mentor young people like Abigail, promote independent travel by providing free, long white canes to blind people in need, develop dynamic educational projects and programs to show blind youth that science and math careers are within their reach, deliver hundreds of accessible newspapers and magazines to provide blind people the essential information necessary to be actively involved in their communities. Offer aids and appliances that help seniors losing vision maintain their independence. Below are just a few of the many tax-deductible ways you can show your support of the National Federation of the Blind. Lift Roundup By visiting the menu, choosing Donate, and selecting the National Federation of the Blind, you commit to giving to the National Federation of the Blind with each ride. Vehicle Donation Program we accept donated vehicles, including cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, or recreational vehicles. Just call 855-659-9314 toll-free, and a representative can make arrangements to pick up your donation. We can also answer any questions you have. General Donation General donations help support the ongoing programs of the NFB and the work to help blind people live the lives they want. You can call 410-659-9314 extension 2430 to give by phone. Give online with a credit card or through the mail with check or money order. Visit our Ways to Give page at https colon slash slash nfb.org slash give. Pre-authorized contributions. Through the pre-authorized contribution, PAC program, supporters sustain the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind by making recurring monthly donations by direct withdrawal of funds from a checking account or a charge to a credit card. To enroll, call 877-NFB-2PAC or fill out our PAC donation form, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash PAC. Plan to leave a legacy. The National Federation of the Blind Legacy Society, our Dream Maker Circle, honors and recognizes the generosity and imagination of members and special friends who have chosen to leave a legacy through a will or other planned giving option. You can join the DreamMaker Circle in a myriad of ways. Percentage or Fixed Sum of Assets You can specify that a percentage or a fixed sum of your assets or property goes to the National Federation of the Blind in your will, trust, pension, IRA, life insurance policy, brokerage account, or other accounts. Payable on Death POD Account You can name the National Federation of the Blind as the beneficiary on a Payable on Death POD account through your bank. 
You can turn any checking or savings account into a POD account. This is one of the simplest ways to leave a legacy. The account is totally in your control during your lifetime, and you can change the beneficiary or percentage at any time with ease. Will or Trust If you do decide to create or revise your will, consider the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary. Visit our planned giving webpage, link available at nfb.org weblinks, or call 410-659-9314, extension 2422, for more information. In 2022, our supporters helped the NFB send 371 Braille Santa and Winter Celebration letters to blind children, encouraging excitement for Braille literacy. Distribute over 3,000 canes to blind people across the United States, empowering them to travel safely and independently throughout their communities. Deliver more than 500 newspapers and magazines to more than 100,000 subscribers with print disabilities free of charge. Give over 700 Braille writing slates and styluses free of charge to blind users. Mentor 207 blind youth during our Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy. Award 30 scholarships each in the amount of $8,000 to blind students. Just imagine what we will do this year and, with your help, what can be accomplished for years to come. Together with love, hope, determination, and your support, we will continue to transform dreams into reality. Braille Books and Contest Cash by Sandy Halverson A photo appears on the page, the caption, Sandy Halverson. From the editor, It is hard to know of any way we could find a better partner than the American Action Fund for Blind Children and Adults. Many of us have taken advantage of the annual Braille calendar since we can remember. We grew up, were read to, and were fascinated by Twin Vision books. How many of us thought that as children we would get to actually work with the fine people who made these things happen in our lives? Enjoy what one of our finest volunteers has to say about our Braille reading contest. The American Action Fund for Blind Children and Adults and the National Federation of the Blind are excited to announce our 2023-2024 Braille Readers Are Leaders contest, where you get to decide what Braille books you want to read, whether a few pages or the entire book, magazine, or article and the only thing you have to do is keep track of when you start and stop each day you read. Contest registration is now open at www.actionfund.beanstack.org, and after completing the registration process and logging your first 60 minutes, a t-shirt will be sent to you as quickly as possible so you can wear it during the contest and tell your friends and family about Braille and the importance of literacy to blind people. Each student in kindergarten through 12th grade who registers and logs minutes spent daily reading books or magazines in Braille earns badges, access to leaderboards for comparison with other peers across the country, and cash prizes for first, second, and third place winners in each category. Adult Braille readers earn cash prizes for first, second, and third place winners and a t-shirt, but no additional prizes. For the past two years, the American Printing House for the Blind has provided two 20-cell Braille note-takers as a grand prize for one adult and one student. We do not know yet what our grand prizes will be for our current contest participants, but the more you read, the more often your name is entered into the drawing. We recognize that there are times when technology is not your friend, no matter how many videos you may watch or what that email said. So if questions arise, email braillereadingcontest at actionfund.org and one of our volunteers will provide assistance. Several members in the most recent NFB Teachers of Tomorrow program expressed interest in contest participation, so this will be our first year for having a Teachers of Blind Students category. 
We welcome all supporters of Braille literacy, and there is no better way to improve proficiency than taking advantage of those minutes spent reading Braille daily. Of course, winning is the goal, but every minute participating is a win as you improve your Braille and learn what so wonderfully comes to life under your fingers. The 2024 Distinguished Educator of Blind Students Award by Carla McQuillan A photo appears on the page, the caption, Carla McQuillan. From the editor, Carla McQuillan is the president of the National Federation of the Blind of Oregon, a member of the National Board of Directors, and the owner and executive director of Main Street Montessori Association, operating two Montessori schools. She is the chairman of the Distinguished Educator of Blind Students Award Committee, and she has written this announcement seeking applications for the 2024 award. The National Federation of the Blind will recognize an outstanding teacher of blind students at our 2024 National Convention, taking place in Orlando, Florida, from July 3rd through July 8th, 2024. The winner of this award will receive the following. An expense-paid trip to attend the convention. A check for $1,000. A commemorative plaque. A place on the agenda of the annual meeting of the National Organization of Parents of Blind Children to make a presentation regarding the education of blind children and the opportunity to attend seminars and workshops that address the current state of education of blind students, as well as a chance to meet and network with hundreds of blind individuals, teachers, parents, and other professionals in the field. The education of blind children is one of the National Federation of the Blind's highest priorities. We are committed to offering and supporting programs that enhance educational opportunities for this group. Please help us recognize dedicated and innovative teachers who provide quality education and meaningful experiences and opportunities for their blind students. Question. Who is eligible for this award? Answer. Anyone who is currently a teacher, counselor, or the administrator of programs for blind students. Question. Does an applicant have to be a member of the National Federation of the Blind? Answer. No but attending the 2024 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Orlando, Florida, is required. Question. Can I nominate someone else for this award? Answer. Yes. Applicants can be nominated by colleagues, parents, supervisors, or friends who have first-hand knowledge of the individual's work with blind students. Question. How would I apply? Answer. You can fill out the application at the end of this article or find it on our website at nfb.org slash monitor dash links. Question. What is the deadline to submit an application or make a nomination? Answer. All applications must be received no later than May 1, 2024. Please complete the application and attach the required documents specified in the application. If you are submitting a nomination for someone other than yourself, please answer the questions to the best of your ability. Your experience and observations of the nominee will assist the selection committee in their decision. Direct questions to Carla McQuillan at 541-653-9153 or by email at president at nfb-oregon.org. National Federation of the Blind Distinguished Educator of Blind Students Award 2024 Application Deadline May 1, 2024 Provide name home address, city, state, zip code, home phone, work phone, email, school slash program, address, city, state, zip code. Please list any awards or commendations the applicant has received. How long and in what programs have you worked with blind children? In what setting do you currently work?
Briefly describe your current job and teaching responsibilities. How would you describe your philosophy of blindness as it relates to the education of blind students? What are your thoughts on teaching Braille and cane travel? When and at what age would you begin? How do you determine whether to teach print or Braille? What was your most memorable experience working with blind students? Why should you be selected to receive this award? Email is strongly encouraged for transmitting nominations. Letters of support and other relevant materials should be included as attachments. Applications sent by mail and postmarked by the deadline will also be accepted. Send all material by May 1, 2023 to Carla McQuillan, Chairperson, Teacher Award Committee, President at nfb-oregon.org, or by mail to Carla McQuillan, 2378 11th Street, Florence, Oregon, 97439. Phone, 541-653-9153. Veteran finishes the half marathon at the Cleveland Marathon while serving as an inspiration for blind athletes by Irie Harris. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Irie Harris. Published May 21, 2023 on cleveland.com. All rights reserved. Reprinted slash used with permission. From the editor, part of our agreement to run this article was that it not be edited in the least. This means we have not applied monitor style for the writing of numbers, worried about serial commas, or corrected in any way sentences in which we might have assisted in the flow. We believe that what is offered here is of value and appreciate the permission given to us to run it. Cleveland, Ohio Throughout Sunday, the cheers from Cleveland Marathon spectators along the sidewalk were at a moderate volume. The only occasions where the cheers or music increased were when the marathon's winners or a fan's friend or family crossed the finish line. But there was a moment of its own when two men and the cheers became quite loud. Was it their outfits? They were standard outfits for the runners, yet a bit more colorful. A marathon MC then stuck the microphone near the men and asked them about the race, in which one of them mentioned, I'm blind. And as they walked closer to receive their medals, the outfits made sense. The speaker, Jose Centeno, wore a baby blue toned vest featuring the word blind in large black letters. Underneath the vest was a collared shirt with National Federation of the Blind, and on top of his was U.S. Marine Corps veteran hat. The audience of the 2023 Cleveland Marathon was recognizing that Centeno, a 67-year-old blind man and U.S. Marine Corps veteran, completed the half marathon. Beside him was his race guide and coach, Mike Stokes, who wore a t-shirt with Team WRB, red, white, and blue. It was a wonderful 1.3, bracket miles, close bracket. I really, really enjoyed running this Cleveland half marathon with my friends, Centeno said. Centeno's race could have came to an end toward the last stretch because of his arthritis, but he kept going. The Dayton native crossed the line with a finishing time of 2 hours, 41 minutes, and 4 seconds. Usually at the 10-mile marker, that's when I start falling apart because of arthritis in my left knee. But he, Stokes, didn't tell me that, Centeno said. We passed the 10-mile marker, then when we got to the 11th marker, then that kind of motivated me more because with two miles to go, that just gave me the high. Add in a scraped and bloody knee due to a fall during the race, and this was quite the battle won by Centeno. I kind of fell, but it was great, Centeno said while smiling. He was quick to cite all his supporters, including Stokes, his friend Keith, and Mickey, a dog sitting in a backpack on Keith's back. 
Centeno also pointed toward his collared T-shirt with National Federation of the Blind featured on it and cited their support. The National Federation of the Blind knows that it is not a characteristic that defines blind people and our future. It's a great organization, Centeno said. And beside him was Stokes, a coach and member of Team Red, White, and Blue, an organization focused on keeping former veterans active in life. Our mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans, and we just like to keep veterans active and healthy, Stokes said. And the best thing you can do is to get out there and move. They hadn't known each other until introduced by the Cleveland Institute, and once meeting, their friendship took off. I didn't know Jose until Team RWB introduced him to us, so the Cleveland Institute reached our organization, asking us if we can help him out, and we were glad to, Stokes said. But there was a time when Centeno's smile wasn't as big as it was on Sunday. After serving for 21 years, Centeno was hired by the U.S. Post Office in 1996. At some point he contracted glaucoma, but was on medication and could still see. In August of 2015, his vision took turn for worse due to the glaucoma. Centeno was blind in his right eye and can only see shadows with his left eye. When I went blind, I got so depressed that the doctor wanted to put me on medication, but I said no way, Centeno said. I'm going to do what I was doing before I was blind, and that is running, and so I started to run again. By that point, he was back into running, connected with Team RWB, and he hasn't stopped since. Even if you're not a veteran, and you're blind, go out there and do something, he said. Don't let your blindness get you depressed. 11 Seasonal Acts of Kindness by Lashana Fant A photo appears on the page, the caption, Lashana Fant. From the editor. As blind people, we are often the takers, not so much of choice, but sometimes for not knowing the ways in which we can give. Lashana is a regular contributor to these pages, and it is with gratitude that we run her suggestions about how we can be givers in our communities. There are endless good deeds we can do to give back, make a difference in our communities, and help deliver glad tidings to homes. These are a few examples. 1. Serve in a soup kitchen, food bank, or food pantry. On all occasions, soup kitchens look for volunteers to help serve food and cook meals. A food bank is a warehouse that accumulates food to disperse to needy communities, and a food pantry directly delivers the food to individuals and families who are in need. For many people, a meal at a soup kitchen may be the only meal they eat that day. Volunteering at a food bank or local food pantry may include donating food, purchasing food with a budget, and distributing food to those in need. These are all fruitful ways to help and connect with people of various backgrounds. As a volunteer, you will help those in need with the food necessary to keep them healthy. 2. Assist your local animal rescue or humane society. You can donate dog food and other wish list items, help pets find a forever home, and assist the animal shelter with educating about their different programs. These small things can make a big difference. 3. Tutor or mentor individuals. Tutors help provide one-on-one -on -one assistance to students who need to hear the material differently. More often than not, a tutor will help find a simpler way for the student to make sense of and learn the material. Usually, this is beneficial in keeping an individual's mind sharp and learning a priority. In addition, a mentor is a person who can support, advise, and guide you. They typically take the time to get to know you and the challenges you are facing and then use their understanding and personal experience to help you improve. Mentorship, in general, gives kids who may not have a good role model a chance to experience a healthy relationship with an adult. 
These are great ways to spark your creativity and bring joy to the world while extending your hand to uplift. 4. Gather family and friends to sing songs. Deck the halls of homes, shelters, and nursing homes by singing carols. While jingling your bells, encourage your loved ones to sing and perform in our local neighborhoods. This gesture does not involve decorating, gift wrapping, or shopping. However, these wintry lyrics can make a person smile a little easier. 5. Donate money to a charity or nonprofit of your choice. Motivate your children and loved ones to donate part of their earnings to a local cause or nonprofit and be an example by donating to the cause as well. Any monetary contribution will be of aid. 6. Make Braille greeting cards or arts and crafts. Handmade cards and festive, artful designs are original pieces of creativity. Let your imagination flow as your thoughtful custom cards and glittery crafts bring cheer to someone's heart and home. 7. Help out at a homeless shelter. Annually, countless Americans are sleeping in homeless shelters, transitional housing, and public places like bus stops, bridges, and parks. Helping their lives to be merry and bright by volunteering is of great value. You and the children can dash through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, read silly joke books, or put together a puzzle set. With the older residents, you can clean the community common room and kitchen, help research housing or jobs, or assist in learning a new skill. 8. Call and check on people who are grieving, sick, or need to hear a pleasant voice. While snuggled on your couch and without leaving your home, you can call and warmly connect with people. Sometimes, this expression is the very act of kindness a person needs. 9. Donate new or gingerly used items. Everyone is not able to purchase items at full price. Typically, they scurry to shelters or thrift stores to pick up items necessary to survive. Donating items that are unwanted or no longer used is a great way to help out your community. The gently used coats, blankets, and shoes in your closet can make a big difference to others while cleaning up some of the clutter in your home. 10. Visit the elderly. Often, the residents of nursing homes, along with the patrons of senior centers, do not see the jolly faces of guests. Even if you don't have a family member who lives in the nursing home or goes to the senior center, you can volunteer at senior citizen events and read books, bring baked goods, play games, make birthday cards, and so much more. The residents will enjoy the company. You may also hear some great stories about years gone by. 11. Bake a cake or dessert to take to a family. A sweet treat can add to a family's meal, whether it is a chocolate cake, banana pudding, or fresh brownies. Showing a child how to bake or design a gingerbread house or allowing them to help deliver the dessert to a family is also beneficial. Monitor Miniatures, news from the Federation family. Santa and winter letters available in Braille. Did you know that the National Federation of the Blind helps bring good cheer and fun to children all over the country during the winter season? The Santa-slash-Winter Celebration Braille Letter Program does just that. Children from birth through age 10 can receive a Braille letter from Santa or a Braille Winter Celebration Letter in either English or Spanish. Along with the letters, children will receive a packet of activities that they can share with their siblings, parents, and grandparents because all the items in the packet are sent in Braille and print. The program doesn't last long. This year's celebration runs from November 6 through December 15. Request your letter soon. Information available at nfb.org monitor links. Appreciating NFB Newsline 
This was received from a grateful reader in Kentucky. As someone who has been visually impaired all of her life, I really appreciate this service. Newsline has provided me an opportunity to stay connected to my community as well as an opportunity to contribute to discussions with my sighted friends on current events. I could do that by listening to the news on the radio or TV, but listening to the story and getting all of the details of that story is something that is difficult to do if you aren't actually reading it. If I miss something, I can hear the audio again just like my sighted friends can read the print again. I feel that I now have the same advantages that my sighted friends have with accessing information. I love to listen to my local newspapers and magazines in my pocket favorites on my brand new Victor Reader stream. I'm able to download my favorites wirelessly. In just a matter of seconds, it's on my player's bookshelf. I really appreciate NFB Newsline. In brief, notices and information in this section may be of interest to monitor readers. We are not responsible for the accuracy of the information. We have edited only for space and clarity. Leader Dogs for the Blind appoints Melissa Weiss as new president and CEO. Leader Dogs for the Blind announced the appointment of Melissa Weiss as its new president and chief executive officer following an extensive national search process. Weiss will replace Susan Daniels, who in May of 2023 announced her intention to retire. Weiss is an industry-respected nonprofit executive with over 20 years of experience in fundraising and senior management leading staff and services that support people who are blind or visually impaired. Weiss has served as the Chief Philanthropy Officer at Leader Dogs since 2008. During this time, Weiss has grown total philanthropic revenue at Leader Dog by 121% and estates revenue by 164%, enabling greater client service provision. She also successfully led the largest capital campaign in Leader Dogs history, raising $14.5 million for the renovation of its world-class canine development center. Wise is one of just 117 people worldwide to hold the designation of Advanced Certified Fundraising Executive, ACFRE, the highest accreditation for professional fundraisers. Prior to joining LeaderDog in 2003, Wise worked for Christie's London as a private client advisor managing an international portfolio of high-net-worth individuals. Weiss graduated from the University of Notre Dame and has a master's degree from the University of Glasgow. She is a graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business Nonprofit Executive Leadership Program and sits on the American Foundation for the Blind Board of Trustees. Weiss is also a proud member of Lions Club International. Leader Dog Chair Kathy Davis said, After an extensive national search process, we are delighted to welcome Weiss as our new president and CEO. Wise is an inspired, results-driven, and values-driven leader who has a diverse background of experience and an excellent reputation of leadership in the nonprofit sector and field of blind rehabilitation. She is an industry thought leader with a proven track record of revenue and program growth. The board looks forward to Wise realizing the future vision and potential for leader dogs for the blind and the entire community we serve. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Susan Daniels for her leadership. The improvements she has made to the organization's structure, strategy, and operations leave LeaderDog well-positioned for success. Sue retires after an extremely successful 20-year tenure with our organization. Wise said, Thank you to Sue Daniels for her long-standing dedication and tremendous service to the LeaderDog mission. I am honored to be selected as the organization's next president and CEO and to work with our clients and community around the world to advance our important work. 
I am looking forward to advocating for the Leader Dog mission with our clients to promote greater inclusion and access for people who are blind or visually impaired. Weiss will commence her leadership role on December 12, with Daniels staying on in an advisory capacity until January 2024. For additional information, visit www.leaderdog.org or contact Rochelle Niffin, Director of Communications and Marketing at 248-659-5013. NFB Pledge I pledge to participate actively in the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind to achieve equality, opportunity, and security for the blind, to support the policies and programs of the Federation, and to abide by its Constitution.